All right, hey everybody. Uh, welcome to today's today's live stream. So in this live stream, I'm going to do uh, I'm going to record a commentary on a recent interview that I found and released from 1993, where the the primary founders of Project Hindsight were interviewed in 1993, just three months into the project. So the founders of Project Hindsight were Robert Hand, Robert Schmidt, and Robert Zoller. Um, and this was basically the early phases of essentially the revival of ancient astrology, and especially the revival of Hellenistic astrology, um, which has become so popular over the course of the past 30 years. Um, and there's so many different techniques um, that lots of astrologers use today, like sect or whole sign houses or zodiac releasing or um, other techniques like that that are partially were partially popularized as a result of this translation project, um, which got started in 1992 and 1993. So what happened is that I found this um, video that got digitalized and sent to me recently, and it was just this amazing interview. Um, with the three Roberts, Robert Hand, Robert Schmidt, and Robert Zoller, where they're kind of introducing the project. And I thought it was really cool because it gives you a real sense of how they were approaching things and what their mindset was. It gives you an idea of, um, to some extent, how uncertain they were, how this was such new ground that nobody had explored before, that a lot of, they, they sort of knew that they were in over their head a little bit, or that a lot of, that they would have to be careful because a lot of their initial um, sort of ideas and things, they had to approach it with a blank slate, essentially, at least as much as possible. And it's interesting in this interview, seeing how much that's true, or how much they're sort of setting that at the forefront right from the start. So um, I've been wanting to do more live streams recently and more sort of reaction video type content. So this is a bit of an experiment. I see a bunch of people are joining me today in the live chat on YouTube. Thanks everyone for joining me. I appreciate it. Um, I'll try to keep up with some of the comments and the commentary as I'm watching the video as much as I can. Um, but yeah, if anybody has any questions, let me know and I might take a little section to get the, to them um, later, perhaps um, at the end of the video once I'm done with the commentary. All right, um, so other preliminaries. So I decided to release the video yesterday of the interview itself just as a standalone video. So you can find that on my YouTube channel if you just um, go to my YouTube channel for the Astrology Podcast or if you just do a Google search. The current title, I don't know if this will stay the title, but it's early Project Hindsight interview with Robert Hand, Robert Schmidt, and Robert Zoller, and you'll find this video interview that was shot by um, an astrologer named Jeannie Mosier um, in her home in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia back in, I believe, July of 1993. So um, that we're going to watch the, through that today, and I'm going to do my commentary, but I thought it was important for me to release that on its own separately because it's kind of an important historical document because it's one of the first interviews probably that was ever done by the founders of Project Hindsight, which would go on to contribute so much to the revival of ancient astrology over the course of the past uh, 30 years. Um, Saturn was actually in uh, going back and forth between late Aquarius and early Pisces back then in, in 1993. So we're almost perfectly at one Saturn cycle or one Saturn return from that point right now. All right, so you can find that video on YouTube. I also released just an audio version on the podcast as episode 416 of the Astrology Podcast, just in order to sort of like 
preserve that historical document as part of the archives that I've been building up on the podcast. And so we can do a transcript and everything else. Um, and then I'll probably release this episode as episode 417 with my commentary as well as sort of a separate thing. All right. I'm trying to think if there's anything else before I get started, but maybe that's it. Maybe we should jump right into it and I'll just talk and explain more about it as I go. And I'll periodically pause the video to um, explain what's going on. All right. So let's do this. Here we go. We have with us today the three principles of one of the most exciting projects in astrology today, the Hindsight Project. And let me turn it over to Robert Schmidt, who in many ways was the father of this little project, and have him introduce his, his colleagues here and uh, tell a little bit about what Project Hindsight is. Okay, so um, context for the interview. So that astrologer, um, her name is Jeannie Mosier, and she, um, sadly, she was an astrologer who passed away just a few years ago in late 2020, um, but she was an astrologer from Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, which is where Robert Schmidt and his wife Ellen Black lived when the project started. Um, and some of the early Project Hindsight conferences and events were actually held in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, like their early conclaves. So I believe this interview then took place in her living room. And I'm not entirely sure. I've been trying to find out what this event was that this recording is from, because there's actually an audience with a few other astrologers, maybe 10 other astrologers or so, give or take, who were watching. And there's a separate video um, that I haven't released yet that shows a later Q&A where some of these astrologers are sitting around and talking. And some of the other astrologers that were present um, include John Townley was there. He was a friend of um, Robert Schmidt and Ellen Black. And Townley, of course, is famously the originator, the guy that developed and popularized the concept of the composite chart, uh, which is interesting. Um, other astrologers that were there are Pat White and um, another astrologer named Kirkland Brooks, who did a separate interview with Schmidt and Hand and um, Zoller from that time. That's actually really interesting that we'll talk about later. But anyways, um, I just wanted to set the context that this is Jeannie Mosher's uh, living room. I think they must have done some sort of event to celebrate the launch of Project Hindsight because this was only three months after it started. And um, in one of the videos, there's like a Project Hindsight cake and it seemed like a cool little low-key event, but it wasn't like a full Project Hindsight um, like conference, it seemed like, because the first in the history of Project Hindsight, as far as I know, the first major Project Hindsight conference wasn't until a year later in 1994. So this is kind of an interesting event that I'm trying to find out more information about. And if anybody happens to know information, more information about it or happens to have attended, let me know in the comments because I'd like to hear more about the context. All right. I'm Robert Schmidt. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> this is, wait a minute, this is Rob Hand and that's Robert Zola. So. You can, you can keep us straight. Um, we are translating all of the Greek astrological material that survives in manuscript or in, in edited form. Uh, we're starting with the 
material that is basically part of the Western astrological tradition, and that we probably will not confine ourselves to that, but that's where we're beginning. Okay, so that's really important. So one of the things that they say right from the outset that's interesting is they're they're starting with the Greek and Latin material um, because that's what they specialized in. That um, Robert Schmidt spoke spoke ancient Greek and Zoller did uh, Latin, and then Robert Hand was going to be the editor of the series and he was going to help with with both essentially and, and making the translations more presentable and understandable to modern astrologers. Um, but they had an interest in translating basically all ancient astrological texts from different traditions in the long run. And that was one of the weird things about the project is it was super, super ambitious. Um, I mean, even the the limited scope of what they set out to do if they just translated all of the Greek and Latin material would in and of itself be enormous and would be like a lifetime work. But they actually also wanted to translate texts from Arabic. They wanted to translate texts from Sanskrit. One of the first translations that they actually did from Latin was the work on rays by the ninth century Arabic philosopher Al-Kindi. And that text had been translated from Arabic into Latin in the Middle Ages. So because of their interest in it and in that tradition and in the philosophy underlying it, they um, translated it from Latin into English as one of the very first Project Hindsight texts. And it's one that Zoller will mention later on in this interview. But um, I just thought that was interesting because it gives you some idea that they had a really high sort of goals for this, very like kind of like lofty expectations maybe in some ways a little bit too high in terms of what could actually be accomplished or what could actually be done um, in one lifetime. But nonetheless, it was very idealistic and there was like some really cool ideas underlying it. Um, so they did plan eventually also to do a Sanskrit text to translate some ancient Indian texts. And at one of the later Project Hindsight conclaves, they actually had a delegation of astrologers from India that came um, and um, hung out and talk and interacted, and they were comparing basically um, Hellen ancient Hellenistic or ancient Greek and ancient Indian astrology from the Sanskrit texts and starting to note a lot of the parallels and stuff. So that was one of the interesting things about Project Hindsight early on is there was this intention to basically recover and revive all of the ancient traditions and see what they found because that was one of the things is they didn't go in with a ton of pre-existing expectations about what they find because nobody had translated many of these texts before into modern languages so they simply weren't available so they were going to be translating and finding things with the hope that there would be things that were useful and valuable, but they didn't know exactly what yet that they would find. Tracks. Uh, we have a Greek track and a medieval Latin track. I'm the Greek translator of the Western astrological tradition, and that we probably will not confine ourselves to that, but that's where we're beginning. And right now, we have begun two tracks. Uh, we have a Greek track and a medieval Latin track. I'm the Greek translator, Robert Zoller. On the far right here is the medieval Latin translator. And Robert Hand, who you should all recognize, is the general editor of the project. I translate the translation. That's right. <laughs> Which, believe us, is necessary. <laughs> 
Okay, so that comment's like super funny for anybody that was around Project Hindsight for the pat for for the subsequent like thirty years, just because that became kind of like a running gag that um, that oftentimes like Schmidt's translations in particular were so dense, and his his other his translations and, and other writings could be so dense and so complex and so. Um, um, hard to understand, or not not hard to understand, but just using difficult language so that they had to be unpacked. That often there would be somebody that would come in and play the role of like what what the phrase used to be when I was there in between two thousand five and two thousand seven was that somebody needed to like translate the translator, and so Schmidt would have at different points this like succession of different astrologers who would often play that role of taking some of the like major overarching concepts or reconstructions or even just the translations themselves which even once they were translated into English could still be very difficult to read for modern astrologers because they were completely they're very foreign in their terminology and in their approach compared to modern astrology so there would often need to be somebody that would take that and then translate it into something that was useful for modern astrologers or into a presentation that was useful. And Schmidt had a succession of different people that did that, um, like Alan White at one point, who I've released one of his lectures where he had this flip chart lecture that I released in 2020 as an episode of the Astrology Podcast. That was his introduction to Hellenistic astrology, and you can see if you Google, I think, like Introduction to Hellenistic Astrology with Alan White, you can watch that video. And it's it's Alan giving an introduction to Hellenistic astrology, but essentially what he's doing is he's summarizing their understanding of Hellenistic astrology and the main points of the system of Hellenistic astrology as they understood it at that point in time, somewhere around the year like 2000, I think, is when he put that lecture together. Um, or there would be other people later, like Demetra George, for example, who would go and study at Project Hindsight, and she would study with, with Schmidt and Alan White, and then um, put together a course for students of Kepler College to study Hellenistic astrology based on um, the translations that Schmidt was producing from Greek and based on um, their current understanding of everything and some of Schmidt's commentary, but then she would do an extensive commentary and presentations to unpack and make that understandable to a group of, of contemporary astrology students, essentially. So there was always somebody that was like playing that role. And then later at different points, you know, I played that role as well in um, presenting Hellenistic astrology and helping to popularize it. Um, and, and helping to be a bridge, especially with my book, um, Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune, which was meant to be an overview of the Hellenistic tradition and the history and philosophy and techniques of it, and to be sort of like a bridge or, or a gap, to fill the gap between the translations themselves, which are very difficult to read, and modern astrologers who wanted to understand how to practice this system. So um, when I first saw that reference that Rob made, it was really interesting because it suddenly made sense that that was the origin or that was the source of that saying that was always around Project Hindsight, that there needed to be somebody to translate the translator or that joke. Um, and I thought it was interesting that they all laughed about it and that Rob originally was the person that was playing that role and that that's essentially how that got started. So that's really interesting and it filled some things in for me in, in the back of my mind. Um, and also explained more also what Rob's role was and that that was actually a very important role. Um, 
yeah, and maybe we'll come back to that and I'll go through that uh, again some more later, but let's get back into it. Well, actually the last thing is that sometimes even though that role was necessary in later years, Schmidt didn't always necessarily appreciate that role because he didn't like having his, his system or his reconstruction simplified sometimes, or he resented in some instances, the need for that to happen, even though it was necessary because otherwise there would be no audience or there, the audience would be very small. Um, and so it was, it was a, it was a tension for him in terms of his thinking and his teachings between on the one hand, that being a necessity, but on the other hand, him wanting to present his teachings as he wanted to present his teachings or his translations without, you know, necessarily making concessions to like modern astrologers or, or modern readers who needed things to be not dumbed down, but just kind of like explained a bit more than they were sometimes in in those presentations. So that was the other thing that I thought was interesting is just Schmidt's attitude towards that at this stage, because everybody has different eras in their thinking. And I think that's really important when you're doing historical studies is to understand that people's thought can grow and change over time. And that's one of the reasons why I like this interview so much is it shows what each of them were thinking at a very early stage in this project and what their attitudes were towards the material and towards the tradition. Um, and in some instances, it's a little different compared to later. Um, but that's why it's important sometimes to pay attention to like the era in which you're studying different people's works or texts or what have you, and to note changes from one era to the next. So that's a little bit of what we're going to be doing in this video is noting some of the just the approach at the beginning of the project. So um, this project began, was actually only announced uh, in April of this year, about three months ago, uh, where Rob made an announcement about the project at the Norwalk Conference right. in Washington State. And it has had uh, a rather overwhelming response so far. We have astrologers professional astrologers, uh, grassroots astrologers, uh, people who are maybe a little skeptical, uh, at all levels, uh, people have been supporting this project. The way this is done, go ahead. I just wanted you to tell them. Okay, so um, that's really important because they give us some dating information at this point. One is they say Project Hindsight was announced three months ago at the Northwest Astrology Conference. And um, apparently what happened is um, Rob Hand, well, part of the context, which I've told elsewhere, is that um, they got together a group in like 1992 at the United Astrology Conference when Hand and and Schmidt especially connected and decided that they should collaborate together on something. But it wasn't until later in 1992 and early 1993 that they fully formulated this idea of doing a subscription translation project or, or doing a translation project, but essentially crowdfunding it through a subscription service where people would sign up for it. They would give their credit card information or whatever, and then um, they would release, they would um, receive a new translation, essentially one a month. It was the ideal is how fast they were supposed to be translating this stuff, doing somewhat quick preliminary translations of all of the texts and releasing them regularly. 
but that was a hugely like innovative and interesting model for like 1993 to do this essentially to crowdfund a translation project for ancient astrological texts and nowadays we have other versions of that like um you know, of crowdfunding like Indiegogo, or I'm spacing out on what the name of the other big one is that's been so huge over the past decade that even lots of astrologers have used, or there's Patreon, for example, which I use to crowdfund the astrology podcast to help producing different episodes and and basically being able to produce this content. They basically did something similar um, essentially prior to or just before the advent of the internet way back in 1993, which is pretty incredible. And so this project, they announced it. Rob Hand went up and he gave a keynote lecture at the Northwest Astrology Conference in April of 1993. And I was recently able to confirm the dates on that, which were um, Laura Nalbandian, who runs the Northwest Astrology Conference now. It was her mother running the conference back in 1983, but Laura said the Northwest Astrology Conference took place April 23rd through the 26th, 1993. So I don't know if, like, in later years, Rob would eventually give the keynote lecture after dinner at the very end of the conference on the final day of the conference on the Sunday, and it was often this, like, really inspiring um, lecture about philosophy and other things like that. And um, I don't know if he was already in that slot way back then so that he was giving like the culminating lecture of the entire conference. Um, but if he was, that would have been like April 26, 1993, sometime in the evening, just after dinner, maybe like 7 or 8 p.m. So that chart, which I'm trying to track down, if that's a correct date, and I'm trying to track down that lecture from Rob, but that chart for the announcement of Project Hindsight to the astrological community in that lecture would probably be as close as you're going to get to a foundation chart for Project Hindsight, because that really was the moment that Project Hindsight was born, was when it was announced to that community, to the astrological community at that conference in April of 1992. So um, I'm going to keep researching that. I'm also trying to get a hold of that lecture so I can listen to it. And if I find anything interesting, I'll let everyone know. But so this places the dating of this um, three months after that, which was July of um, 1993. And what happened is they said um, in a separate lecture that I found recently from the same month, Rob said that initially when they went to Norwalk and announced it, they brought 300 registration forms. And he said there was maybe two or 300 people who attended the conference. And by the end of the conference, all of those registration forms were gone, so they had been taken over 300 of them. So he did say there was a couple of months after that, after April, where they were kind of like waiting around nervously, not knowing if this was going to work and if people were going to sign up for this subscription service. But he said about two months later, um, the forms really started to come in, and all of a sudden they realized that this was going to work, basically that they were going to be able to do this and pull it off and do this translation project based on this subscription model. So that would have happened basically right around this time, two to three months later, 
is right around the time of this interview. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're all also excited in this interview, as we'll see, because they realize like this is working and now they're actually going to do this and they're going to be producing new translations as fast as they can, basically once a month and kind of firing on all four cylinders because that's one of the interesting things about, you know, as I've learned with like the astrology podcast is when you have sort of like a, a crowdfunding or a subscription service type model that really pushes you to keep generating content regularly in order to meet those obligations. So this is the point very early on in the project when this interview happened, when they suddenly were at that position where they're like, okay, the idea is taking off. Now we have to deliver and start producing these translations. And they had already produced one or two translations at this point. And Schmidt will is about to show off the first one here in, in just a few minutes. Exactly what that what support, the support means, means and how they yes. too could be part of it. What that means is that every month, the translators at this, at this point, Robert Zoller and myself, translate a unit of uh, astrological material from an original language. That's usually about 75 pages, the original. And as we do that, we also annotate it fully, uh, trying to explain, explore difficulties and raise philosophical issues. And at the same time, Rob Hand is then trying to translate this into material that's more familiar to modern astrologers. And sometimes this can be very difficult. Well, these booklets, when they're done, uh, probably about 100 pages. We have one right here. It's the first booklet published by the Hindsight Project. And it is uh, Paulus, Paulus Alexandrinus, a Greek who wrote at the end of the 300s. This work has never been translated into any modern language. It was translated into Latin in the 1500s, and nobody has read it since then which means nobody really has any idea what's in it. Even the scholars who did the critical edition and put it into book form evidently didn't pay too much attention to its content. Well, we chose this as the first work, and it's very representative of the kinds of things we're doing. So it's done in booklet form. We consider this to be a provisional translation. And we okay, so he's getting in the provisional thing, so I'll pause it there. So that was their first translation was from the work of the fourth century astrologer. I think Paulus actually wrote, I think in the year 378 or somewhere around there, um, probably um, in Alexandria and in, in Egypt, essentially. So this is a image of the book. And um, so it says Paulus Alexandrinus, introductory matters translated by Robert Schmidt edited by Robert Hand, Project Hindsight Greek Track, Volume 1. So they had, on the one hand, they had a, a Greek track, and then they had a Latin track for translations from Latin. Um, they also were going to expand it to other languages, and at one point they did actually have Mira Epstein translated some texts of Ibn Ezra from um, Hebrew into English, which was going to be the, a whole like Hebrew track. So... Um, yeah, the, they're really starting there, but they had intentions to do even more than they already were, were doing. So there's Paulus. It's this little um, self-published um, book with a blue cover where they printed out um, using a, they self-published this using a little, I think it, it was like a crank printer um, at home because Schmidt had a background where one of his jobs earlier was um, working in like a publishing 
small like independent publishing company or something like that. And during the 1980s, he and his wife Ellen had actually started an earlier translation project for ancient mathematical texts. So, which he later reflected that that was kind of like a dry run essentially for Project Hindsight. Um, and they started that around 1984, I believe, for the ancient mathematics text, 1983, 1984. Um, but what he says in a different interview is Schmidt says that that didn't end up working because they weren't able to get enough support to fund essentially the um, translation of all these ancient mathematical texts. They couldn't find enough interest in it, even though it did generate just a, a little bit of interest by some, in some some people. So um, anyway, I'm saying that because it means part of the background going into this that's really interesting and relevant for us is that they were self-publishing these little booklets, these preliminary translations, where um, they would print it out on the paper and then they would fold it together in half and then they would staple the edges basically for the binding. So the book itself is just held, held together by two little staples. Um, but this is another part of the the reason why it was such a cool little project is they weren't just crowdfunding this whole thing. They were also like self-publishing and printing the little booklets themselves that they would then mail out to subscribers, which is a pretty cool model for doing things and is pretty like, um, I don't know how to describe it, almost like... Um, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps or like some phrase like that that seems relevant here in terms of sort of taking everything into your own hands and then doing it in order to do something as major as like translate all the ancient astrological texts from the ancient world. So I wanted to explain that just because these translations aren't widely available because they went out of print years ago, um, but they were pretty cool at the time and um, yeah, and, and it was pretty important. All right, so let's go back to the video. This is somewhat of a technical term for us. Since nobody has read this material for hundreds of years, it would be somewhat pretentious of us at this point to try to give a definitive translation of any one of these works for the simple reason that nobody understands a lot of these concepts and you can't get everything that you need to know from one work. So what we are doing is we are doing a first time through, uh, instead of doing what scholars oftentimes do, spend their entire lives or their entire career doing one work and doing what they think is a definitive edition, we think this is a very poor strategy. Instead, we are going to go racing through the entire corpus, doing the best translation we can on this monthly basis. And after, this, after we've covered all the material and we find out the mistakes that we made in the early one, because we certainly make mistakes, then we will return and do more definitive editions. And these will be published in, in the hardback form and we hope represent the, the fruits of hindsight and would be some permanent acquisition to the Western world. <laughs> okay, so that's really important. So Schmidt has just explained there that what they're doing is they're doing preliminary translations of all these texts where they would go through and translate them um, and get them out to subscribers, but it would be preliminary it would not it was not meant to be like a final definitive translation of each of these texts because one of the things that you can see uh, because both the translator and the editor would write an introduction at the beginning that would be uh, I don't know like five or maybe sometimes ten pages long um, to each translation 
And they would also write footnotes where they would sometimes write commentary about different lines of the text. And you can actually see in this that they're very open about um, their speculations and open about talking about um, things that they understand at this point from the text after having translated it versus things that are still ambiguous. Or there were some words, for example, that they didn't feel comfortable translating yet, so they would leave it... um, sort of provisionally in the original language. Like, for example, the word zoideon, which is the word for a sign of the zodiac that we just call a zodiac sign today, Schmidt wasn't um, comfortable translating it because he hadn't he couldn't settle on an exact word for it yet because it meant a few different things and he wasn't sure yet which one was the correct meaning so that means he left it untranslated so when you read a lot of the project hindsight translations the preliminary ones when it mentions the sign of the zodiac it'll just say zoideon in italics to show that it's still in the original greek um and then later, I think by 2009, when Schmidt did eventually publish his first and only um, final definitive translation text, which is a translation of Antiochus, he finally settled on translating Zoideon as the word image um, because he thought that that's actually what the original Greek word was meant to convey the most, was the idea of an image for many different reasons that I'm not going to get into, but that shows you the interesting thing about the product early on is the sort of like tentative nature of it and the tentative nature of some of the conclusions, as well as their openness to being wrong, essentially, or to revising their thinking as they went. And there were different things that they revised their thinking on at different points um, during the course of the, the project and during the course of doing the preliminary translations because they were literally just translating each text and then learning from it and then moving on to the next text and then learning from it and continually adding to what they knew about the tradition. But it was very much a work in progress as opposed to the other way that it's sometimes done in academia is like peop- a person will spend... Um, years and years and years, or they'll spend their entire life or entire professional career um, just trying to translate and understand, like, let's say one text, like, let's say somebody's doing a PhD dissertation, they spend years working on just that one text, and then eventually they'll publish it much later on, later in their career, or even towards the end of their career, before they say anything sort of definitive about it. So they were trying to take the opposite approach, because Um, You know, in the astrological community, one of the issues is that because astrology is sort of on the outskirts of society and certainly on the outskirts of academia, that astrology doesn't really have institutional support. So there wasn't really any way to get grants or funding for a project like this to translate ancient astrological texts, either in an academic setting or really in most settings. This was a unique way that they were able to do that by having it funded by the astrological community and having astrologers kind of like buy into it and sign up for this subscription service. And then through that, that would allow them to start translating the texts and doing the research in the process of doing that. So that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about the project and kind of unique about those early days. And actually what's interesting is to me, that makes the preliminary translations very valuable because they're often, especially Schmidt, 
um, is often translating the text, the preliminary translations, in a very literal way where he just looks at the Greek text and then he tries to, to render the translation as literally to the Greek as he possibly can. Um, and he's not adding a lot of like additional assumptions or other things on top of that because he didn't really have a lot of firm opinions about things at that point. And to me, that's actually one of the things that's very valuable about the preliminary translations is that there's not a lot of sort of like biases or assumptions going into them, which makes them a lot more neutral than, I mean, even in some of Schmidt's later work, like with Antiochus, his views on Hellenistic astrology were much more... Um, sort of fixed or much more he, more firm in terms of what he thought the tradition was and how it was constructed and how it originated and different things like that. And that would sometimes inform the way that his translation was done, basically, how he translated the texts based on what he thought about that tradition versus earlier at this early stage in his thinking, he had so few preconceptions about it that um, the translations were much more neutral in a way. So that's the sort of you know pros and cons of the preliminary translations is that they, on the one hand, are preliminary, and as a result of that could sometimes contain mistakes or omissions or different things because this is the first time they're translating, or in some instances that anybody's translating these texts. Like Paulus had never been translated into any modern language before. So sometimes you have that preliminary nature, which could be viewed as a downside. But on the other hand, that preliminary nature actually, to some extent, allowed the translations to be much more neutral than they could have been otherwise, which to me is actually, in some ways, kind of an advantage. All right, so let's go back to this. I discovered that this writer, who was considered to be a wretched writer, according to the scholars, actually had a very sophisticated philosophical understanding and symbolic understanding and mythological understanding, and he had embedded his astrological thinking into that, into that framework, into that matrix. This was really quite amazing. And how about a usable piece of information? <laughs> I know that appeals to you as a scholar, uh, but for those of us... That's a really funny comment because, like Schmidt's interest, his part of his background is is in philosophy and and mathematics and different things like that, which is where a large part of his genuine interests lie. And so Schmidt himself was like pretty interested in the philosophical the connections between the astrological traditions and the ancient philosophical traditions, and he came to believe that astrology represented like a uh, previously unknown sort of like philosophical school um, that wasn't often recognized in studies of ancient philosophy essentially which is for the most part is actually true for sure um, you know depending on how you define that or you know there's different caveats but um, you know, it's interesting that that's like his first explanation of like what's interesting about this very first translation that they've done. But then Genie's reaction is actually great because that's actually very much the reaction that many contemporary astrologers had, which is like, 
well, that's great. But like, what can I get from this in terms of practical techniques? Like, what what value do these translations have, and what am I going to learn from them that will help me as a practicing astrologer today? So it's actually kind of funny, and that of course also became one of the tensions just in terms of Project Hindsight and in terms of the need to like fund this project and sort of um, make it work in a way that the astrological community supported it on the one hand, uh, you know, but also the tension between sometimes the modern astrological community wasn't as interested in works on like history or philosophy or other things like that. I mean, that's still, you know, something even on the podcast, for example, that I deal with or, or struggle with a little bit sometimes, which is that you know, my most popular episodes are are the technique episodes where I'm teaching people how to practice astrology, since that's the thing that most astrologers want to know. And astrologers tend to be less interested in the more like historical episodes, for example, like this one or other historical episodes that I've done. So I try to like sprinkle my historical content in in between my practical content to keep things interesting. And it's interesting here. Um, Jeannie's reaction just kind of reminds me of one of the tensions that they would have dealt with in the 90s in terms of trying to make, trying to popularize this project to the astrological community and that they were probably still getting their messaging down about like how to do that and, how, and why it was valuable. Because even though Schmidt and Hand and Zoller were kind of like super nerds who are into like history and philosophy and studying ancient astrology and, and all this other stuff. That wasn't necessarily something that would motivate most practicing astrologers. And in fact, a story that I've heard over and over again is that there was a lot of contemporary astrologers in the 1990s who signed up for the subscription service, who were persuaded by especially Rob Hand's promotions of it and why it was important to recover ancient astrology and recover our tradition. But then many of the contemporary, many of the modern astrologers of the 1990s would would then you know, open up the booklets, the preliminary translations, find them incredibly difficult to read and understand because they are just at face value. If you don't have a primer that kind of like orients you to the tradition, which is eventually why I wrote my book or Demetra's book, two volume series titled Ancient Astrology is another amazing primer and way of orienting yourself that allows you to read the translations and understand what they mean. If you don't have that, then you kind of, even once you get the translation, even though it's in English, you hit a brick wall and there's not very far you can go. So I've heard of many astrologers from the 90s that signed up for the translation service, received the booklets, but then they would just kind of place them on their shelves and never really read them or understand what was going on, even though they were helping to fund the project because they believed in what they were doing or they believed in what was happening and they thought it was important, even if it didn't necessarily personally impact them or they weren't able to get a lot out of it. Those who are out there, are we going to find out something that says, oh, well, if you have the sun square the moon, it really means this instead of that? I mean, One of the things that, that these two fellas did with that book was to solve the, the 
pressing question of the dreaded monomora, <laughs> which, which scholars heretofore <laughs> have been unable to solve, has now been put in clear English and is a usable technique in, in uh, this Alexandrian astrology. But for exactly what they are, I think you should hear what one of them has to say. Okay, so let's hear about the dreaded the monomora. Dreaded monomaria. The dreaded monomaria. The dreaded is not part of the original text. <laughs> um, actually, well, the monomoria are, there are actually two systems in Paulus. The one that, the one that got the epithet dreaded was a system in which each degree of a sign is ruled by a planet. And in this particular case, the planetary rulerships are assigned according to complicity rulers, which is another layer of complexity. But uh, it turns out the system is used to rectify horoscopes. That's perfect. And in fact, uh, there are a number of ancient techniques that astrologers know of, the two most outstanding of the Truatine of Hermes and the Anamudar of Ptolemy. Well, there are at least four others in Paulus that are totally unknown to modern astrologers of a similar nature. So that means that, that there will be... I want to say, I love Rob Hand, and that's basically it. That's all I want to say. Um, he, I know he's not around as much today, these days, over the past five to ten years, but um, seeing him here and seeing him when he's like younger, this is 30 years ago, and just his cadence and his manner of presentation and how he talks and stuff, like watching this video brought back a lot of memories, not just of him, but also of Schmidt and seeing Schmidt much younger um, and seeing how Schmidt talks and jokes and laughs and remembering those parts of his personality, seeing Zoller, um, seeing Zoller before he developed Parkinson's disease, basically, which he would in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, which then really stopped him from being able to produce a lot of things. And um, Zoller passed away a few years ago in 2020. Um, Schmidt passed away in 2018. Um, so one of the things for people like me that knew all three of these men is like seeing this recording from way back in 1993 is actually really interesting, really powerful. And one of the things subtly about it is just it gives you an idea of each of their personalities and, and some of their quirkiness and things like that. And some of the things that are very endearing about, about each of them. Um, and I know there's a lot of older astrologers, a lot of astrologers that are around that'll have similar reactions. Or last night when I released a video, I had a friend, a couple of friends write me to say that they had reactions like that. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to release this because it's important in terms of remembering um, each of these astrologers and not just their contributions through their work, but also to some extent, like their personalities and their different per personal quirks that made them who they are or who they were. The astrologers mining these little booklets for topics to talk about at conferences for at least from now to the end of the millennium, right? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I hope so. And I'm, I'm sure that some of it will probably be um, very inspired and creative, and some of it will probably be best left in the dustbin of history. <laughs> but isn't that what provisional is all about? Uh, so Rob makes a joke about... He, he used that phrase, the dustbin of history, like a few times in later lectures, so I think that's funny, but... Genie's like, you know, I'm sure some of these techniques that'll give astrologers things that they'll research and talk about and present at conferences. And Rob's like, yeah, probably. And some of that will probably be good. And some of that will probably not be good, which is um, 
true, although for the most part, you know, I think with the revival of traditional astrology, it's been interesting how much I do think that's raised some of the level of discourse in the astrological community and some of the quality, partially because traditional astrology is hard. It's like harder to do, especially in the earlier stages, because you need to learn like ancient history and philosophy and you have to struggle with reading these like very dense, sometimes difficult to read translations and different texts like that. And there is a certain way in which that inherently through the the challenge or difficulty of the process can make you um, slow down and think a little bit more carefully and more deeply sometimes about what you're doing. So I don't want that to be misconstrued as like a you know, kind of weak um, comparison of saying like modern astrology bad, traditional astrology good, or something like that, because that's not the case at all. And actually, I think there's great things as well as bad things about modern and traditional astrology. And ideally, you know, at this stage, 30 years later, now that we've largely recovered traditional astrology, we're at the stage where we're really starting to synthesize the two and find the way to put together the best pieces from both. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought this comment of Rob's is interesting because all of the statements they make in this interview, the reason why it's so interesting now is to look at it now, 30 years later in retrospect and how much the project that they were just barely getting started with and were just initiating at this time has transformed the astrological community in many ways and that there's new generations of astrologers that are coming up who sometimes are learning ancient astrology first and then they're learning modern astrology later which is pretty wild to me because that's the reverse of how i learned it where i learned modern first and then learned ancient astrology um, or other some of my other contemporaries. But um, yeah, we've got to look at this entire interview in the context of just like how much things have changed in the past 30 years, in many instances directly as a result of the work that these three did. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the, to answer the question you asked of uh, Schmidt, of myself, um, I already mentioned the sect issue. I don't want to go into that again in another context today. but. Uh, another one, which I found personally enormously gratifying, was several years ago, I wrote an essay in my book of essays on astrology on the 13th harmonic, and this was based on a reference in Neugebauer to a system of the Greek astrologers used, and ever since I read that reference in Neugebauer, I was finding instance after instance after instance of this technique done differently from the way I described it in the essay. And I was beginning to wonder if Neugebauer had hallucinated and I had been led down the garden path by Neugebauer. Well, their high, wide, and handsome sitting in the middle of Paulus is exactly the method that I got from Neugebauer, complete with examples of how to use it and what its significance is, including some things that uh, were, noted by, were noted by no one else. Uh, and they also appear in these rectification techniques. So we not only have this technique supported by the polis, but also practical illustrations of its use. So an important point here in context, especially with respect to some of the debates that have happened recently, is that even though they're very early on in the project and they've only produced polis, like one or two translations at this point, um, each of them has already done like enormous amount of background work and has a lot of background in the history of ancient astrology, of the academic scholarship that had been done up to this point, 
Um, Hand, for example, right now is talking about Otto Neugebauer, who is one of the most significant historians of ancient science and especially astronomy um, in the 20th century. So each of them already had um, a pretty strong background. And even though they were translating some of these things uh, into English for the first time, um, both of, a lot of them had already studied the history of astrology pretty extensively. Um, certainly Hand had, uh, Zoller had, and even Schmidt at this point. One of the things I realized and, and learned about Schmidt actually in another interview that I found recently that I'll, I may release at some point soon um, is that Schmidt, um, apparently when he was working at Matrix Software sometime between 1989 and 1991 or so, um, started translating the text of Claudius Ptolemy, of the second century astrologer Claudius Ptolemy. And um, Hand actually describes this, and then that was apparently the, the context of the famous quote or the famous line that I had always heard um, told about what happened at UAC in 1992 is that when Schmidt was translating Ptolemy for Michael Earlywine in the late 80s and early 90s, um, Hand originally said he was going to do find a way to do a new translation and commentary on it, but when he heard that Schmidt and, and Earlywine were working on it, he decided not to. But then Hand said to Schmidt at some point in that time period, in like 1990, 1981, maybe as early as 1989, he said, if early wine ever drops the ball, then come find me and we'll work together and we'll do something, we'll collaborate. And what happened in 1992 is that Schmidt had stopped working with early wine for some reason. Um, there may have been some tensions there, but he stopped working for early wine and stopped working for Matrix. And then Schmidt and his wife, Ellen, like got in a car and they tell this famous story of like charging up their credit card and going to UAC and then Schmidt finds hand in, in I think the bookstore at the United Astrology Conference in I believe April of 1982 and he says he goes up to hand and he says early wine drop the ball like let's let's do something and then right then basically that night and over the next two or three nights there was this succession of meetings with several different astrologers where they started to formulate the idea that would eventually become project hindsight and this idea of doing some kind of translation project or some sort of archive for historical texts which is the term hand used for it and for his version of it it sometimes gets kind of confused but hand had this term arhat which was the archive for the retrieval of historical astrological texts um anyways so over the course of the next several months they keep working out the idea but i think it wasn't until late 1992 and early 1993 that they came up with the idea of doing a subscription service to fund this project and that was the innovative idea that became project hindsight um, which then was announced in april of 1992 april of 1993 and then here they are having just produced their first translation and doing an interview about it in july of of 1993. all right now, do you feel that, that this will make those of us who practice astrology with individuals better astrologers? Eventually, but there'll have to be a great deal of interpretation done between now and that. Not instantly, no. I see. More thoughtful, perhaps. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, one thing I am looking forward to. So that's super important and, and it was really interesting to think about and reflect on is that, and that I, th I thought was really fascinating is she asked them point blank, like, is this going to make it, are these translations and recovering ancient astrology going to make contemporary astrologers better astrologers? And Hand actually uh, is kind of like he hedges or he's actually, actually very conservative about it. And he's like, eventually, but we're going to have to do a lot of work first. It's not immediately going to make everybody a better astrologer, a great astrologer or something like that, which is actually a very um, measured response, um, especially because it's like they're trying to promote this and like sell this project to the astrological community. And I was kind of surprised that they're really not overhyping it. I mean, they certainly have very high ambitions and like lofty expectations and all sorts of things about this project you know, to some extent in the long term, which turned out to be almost too idealistic or, or shooting too high um, in terms of what they were eventually able to accomplish, although the reasons that, the, that it wasn't fully accomplished or finished are due to a variety of different things that happened. Um, and maybe there were some scenarios where they could have um, could have done what they set out to do if, if like personality conflicts hadn't gotten in the way in later years. But um, it's so interesting to me that they're actually setting very reasonable expectations, not just for themselves, but also for the astrological community. And Hand is very upfront about saying, you know, um, this is a work in progress and we're translating all these texts, but even once we translate them, it's gonna take a while to unpack and understand the techniques that the texts are describing and then eventually to put the techniques in practice and test them out and see which ones are really which ones really work and which ones are really effective versus, versus which ones don't or which ones aren't as effective um, just like any other technique or tradition in, in contemporary modern astrology so I thought that was really interesting in terms of the expectations that they set and Schmidt is quick right there to be like, well, you know, it will help them like think more deeply about the material. And he tries to sort of counterbalance hands somewhat overly cautious, um, you know, s expectations or statements about what what subscribers might expect. And Schmidt says that it will, at the very least, help people think more deeply about the tradition and about the techniques that they're using and the philosophical and other principles underlying them, which was his main interest, um, especially as the one that was primarily coming from a background in philosophy and mathematics and ancient history. But um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting because, again, that then becomes clear as part of as part of discussing like the history of Project Hindsight and narrative surrounding it, um, how they were actually pitching to this, this to the community and talking about it. Here, they're almost, they're just a bit more measured than I expected, and I thought that was interesting. Eliminating is lines that begin. Well, the ancients said, and you never find out who the who said ancient was. Or, gee, according to our method, according to our teachers, uh, this is an ancient practice that we've already brought up to date. Again, no reference. Are there ancient astrology? Okay, so that's really important because he, he says. And that's true. It's a hand says one of the things that will be good about translating all these texts is that we'll have a clear um, account of the historical record of what the ancient astrologers said. And he says, like, in some instances, that means that people that are claiming great antiquities for certain techniques 
today that the ancients use these techniques, we may find that those techniques are actually modern inventions or much more recent developments than certain people are claiming. And that's actually true. There are some techniques like that where, for example, um, I don't want to like get into a whole thing about this. I've been to do a podcast episode at some point, but for example, actually, no, I'm not going to get, I'm not getting into it. I'm not trying to get into some controversy today, but there's some techniques that sometimes astrologers in the late 20th century thought, um, sometimes honestly believed were techniques from ancient astrology, but, um, they actually, it turns out were, were misunderstandings or they misread the text thinking that it was outlining a technique, but then it turned out when we went back and translated all the texts and saw the ancient chart examples where, for example, Valens uses over a hundred chart examples that um, we couldn't find any traces of that technique from prior to the 20th century, which meant that it was a modern invention. And that doesn't mean it was wrong because sometimes there can be, and this is something actually Schmidt emphasized constantly throughout his career, sometimes in the process of um, recovering or genuinely trying to reconstruct something, we can sometimes accidentally invent something new that is valid, um, even if it turns out that our what we invented is something new and that we didn't actually recover something that was genuinely ancient. But through the process of doing that and, and of making the effort, sometimes you can find something or make a discovery that's actually valid or useful. And this is something that he had taken from some of his earlier work in mathematics and especially with the mathematician Francois Viette. And it was something he constantly referred to and, and talked about over and over again. And, and there's pros and cons to that because to some extent that that's a little tricky because then it's a little bit of a cover for if you are just like inventing things in modern times but claiming they're ancient there can sometimes be an issue there um, if you're you know not being true to the tradition or but sort of like, like saying you are, there can be a tension there. So that's that's a whole separate discussion. But I thought it was interesting that Hans said that because that would actually be the outcome in some instances, like not a lot of instances, but one of the things about reviving ancient astrology is now um, it's completely different than where it was 30 years ago, where if somebody says for some like wacky new technique that this is something that they that was used in ancient astrology, you can turn around and say, well, what text did you find that in? Let me know what chapter and paragraph, and I'll go check it out because I want to study that technique further and see how the ancient astrologers talked about it. And if that person like doesn't have an answer for that, it may mean that they're just like making that up. Um, and that's completely different than where it was in like the 1980s or 1990, early 1990s, where somebody could claim antiquity for a technique without it actually being from ancient times. So that's radically changed the astrological community in, in certain ways. Translation right now. There's only Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos, primarily, and Manilius, and Fermius, but not Greek. Right, it's, it's only Latin. It's a relative term. Yes. Which is a relative term. Okay. Well, Bob's all over. You have uh, a track that you have a, a treatise ready to come out? I
and the, the entire subject is uh, a very intriguing subject because the premise is, of course, uh, sort of tacitly addressed in this particular text, but something that modern astrologers are always troubled by, namely, once I figure out what the problem is, what do I do about it? And while this particular text doesn't give specific instructions as to what to do about it, it lays out a theory as to why something can be done about it, or how something might be able to be done about it. So uh, that, of course, is the first step, and uh, it alludes to, um, in, in an indirect fashion, it alludes to other known texts, which we also intend to translate, such as the Picatrix, which are quite specific, and not quite as tightly philosophically conceived as this particular one, so they complement each other very nicely. And is this Latin material that you're translating original material, or is it Greek that was translated? So um, that point was important, and just to reiterate that Zoller's first translation and the first translation they did in the Latin track was Alkindi, who was a 9th century Arabic philosopher, and, and on rays is actually a very dense sort of abstract philosophical text essentially which is interesting because that also like kind of sets part of the tone for project hindsight where it really was not just about the techniques but they had a major emphasis also on the philosophy and sort of like metaphysics underlying ancient astrology so much so that one of their first translations was not just Paulus Alexandrinus which is much more practical text on natal astrology and reading birth charts, but it was also publishing Alkindi and this more philosophical text um, from the ninth century that the three of them found interesting. But it shows an interest in studying, uh, translating texts from the Latin and from the later Arabic tradition as well, and that that was a core part of Project Hindsight very early on as they were looking at all of these different traditions of ancient astrology to try to understand and reconstruct what the earliest systems of astrology were. Um, also interesting and notable about this is that um, Zoller briefly mentions the Picatrix in passing because he actually had an interest in astrological magic. And out of the three people, um, he started going back and studying the earlier tradition and practicing traditional astrology earlier than anyone else, starting in the late 1970s and early 1980s. But um, I thought that was interesting because I, th I definitely think, for example, if, if A, Zoller hadn't left the project later in, uh, I think by 1995, I think at the latest, and especially if, if Zoller hadn't developed um, Parkinson's disease in the mid to late 1990s, that he probably would have translated the Picatrix and that the whole revival of astrological magic that's happened over the course of the past decade or so, I think probably would have happened a little bit earlier um, due to Zoller's interest in some of that stuff. And he probably would have made that one of his translations that he would have done. Um, but due to what happened with his health, um, I think that really set him back a lot um, in the in the subsequent years. So he did end up influencing a number of later astrologers that then became pivotal in that revival. So for example, Christopher Warnock, I think was influenced to some extent by Robert Zoller, although I know Warnock also studied with Lee Lehman. Um, so there were different threads of like traditional and, and medieval and Renaissance astrology going on, different overlapping things. Um, 
but I know, for example, Ben Dykes was a student of Robert Zoller's, um, Helena Avalar and Luis Ribeiro, who wrote a very important sort of introductory text on traditional astrology, um, were students of Robert Zoller. So he did influence different people. And it's interesting seeing the revival of astrological magic, especially over the past decade or two. Um, but Zoller, I think, you know, could have ended up playing a much more major role in that because he was going back and studying texts like the Picatrix and stuff like that decades before anybody else was. Um, and, and he was reading them in Latin due to his background in Latin or ability to read Latin, I should say. Translated into Latin. Well, this is an interesting question, really, because it, it shows the nature of the tradition. Uh, this text is by Al-Kindi. He's a ninth century. He was a ninth century Arab philosopher who was translating Greek texts into Arabic. And this is a Latin translation, which is all that survives of his Arabic, of his Arabic work. Uh, it was an original work for him, but it was based on his, his Greek translations of other, of other works. So uh, it's interesting that you see the actual transmission of knowledge from the Greeks to the Arabs, from the Arabs back to the Latins in the Middle Ages. And there must be, one of, one of the problems in all of this must be that you're finding things that the translations through multiple languages have altered what the originals were. Yes, in some cases it appears that the intermediate language, even though it may have, sh may have shared part of the original meaning of, of the concept, then when it was further translated into English, uh, it lost all connection with the original. This happens in the, the Greek term zodion, from we have the word zodiac, which is related to this. And that's the Greek word that corresponds to sign, the sign of the zodiac. And through the Latin translation of the word zoideon into signum, and signum into sign, we've lost all contact with the original semantic field of the Greek word. It's totally gone. We have no con contact. Are you in... Uh... So that was a big... And that's all he ends up saying about that, but which is interesting because that became such a big thing for Schmidt later. But his large part of his motivation for going back and translating the earliest astrological texts that they could find in the horoscopic astrological tradition is that they were motivated, especially Schmidt was motivated by this idea that when you that astrologers for the past 2000 years had been playing this game of of telephone or i guess it's called different things in different regions but you know when like a group of kids sits around in a circle and one of them at the beginning of the circle whispers a secret or whispers a word into the ear of one kid and then they they whisper it into the ear of the kid next to them and then they pass it on to the next one and by the time it gets to the end of the circle what was said or, or the sentence or the word is like completely different um, or sometimes mangled compared to what was said at the beginning. And that's kind of the issue and, and something that Schmidt especially emphasized in the astrological tradition is sometimes you would have these texts or sometimes you would have these words where it would start out in one language, let's say ancient Greek, and then it would get translated into Latin, and then it would get translated into Arabic, and then it would get translated back into Latin, and then it would get translated into some European language like English. So you're talking about this um, chain of transmission that's going from language to language and culture to culture over 2000 years, and that every time um, something is translated, there are some things that are added and there are other things that are lost. 
um, but especially the words themselves, it's hard to maintain sometimes the original meaning or, or range of meanings, because sometimes a single word will not just mean one singular thing, but sometimes a word can mean like five or ten different things that are all relevant in some way to understanding like the full context of what that word is supposed to refer to conceptually. Um, but when you tr each time you translate it, it gets sort of like constricted and narrowed down further and further so that it may not it may not retain the same range of meanings by the time you get to the end of that translation process. So a, a, an obvious, like actual, very tangible example of that is the text of Dorotheus of Sidon, where what we have of that text, or at least the main version of it that survived in its near entirety, Dorotheus wrote in the first century. And what we have is an English translation of a Arabic translation of a Persian translation of a Greek translation of a translation from the original Greek text. And the original Greek text was written in the form of a poem. So the text, once you get to that point, is while still recognizable in its as being derived from the original there's a lot of like drift in the language once you get to that point and a lot of things that are sometimes changed and either added or lost so a big part of this um, project the entire project hindsight in the beginning was the idea of going back to the original languages and then translating directly from those original languages and trying to maintain the words and the terminology as close as possible when rendering it into English. And this was something that Schmidt emphasized especially. Um, so it's interesting here seeing his first um, sort of statements about that in a public interview and something that would become such a core piece of, of his work in later years. Bob, going to be overlapping any translations where you might translate something from the original Greek and he translates it from a Latin derivative and find find out what that gap is? Well, we're trying to stay away from uh, duplicating each other's efforts, but we are in contact all the time comparing notes. Uh, for instance, just before we started this filming, we were talking about a situation where uh, the Latin tradition, Latin medieval tradition, speaks about a planet being in somebody's term, some other planet's term. Uh, but Bach has found that the reference to the terms in Greek is always in the plural. A planet in so many degrees is in the terms of another planet. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are some subtleties of that sort that have to be looked at ultimately. Uh, also, one of the things that Rob just mentioned, the Dodecatamoria, uh, which is basically a 13th harmonic, uh, may very well turn out to be the, uh, handled in the medieval system as the Guadalajara, Latin equivalent of the Guadalajara or the Duodecima, a Duodecima, or the Duodena, depending on the translation, uh, being just a 12-fold uh, multiplication position. There are a few cases of interesting overlap, though, where, for example, a word by Abu Mashar, very important for the, the what we will have an Arabic track eventually. We don't have it working yet, but very important in, in medieval times. Some of those works in Arabic, even though they were based on Greek material, got translated back into Greek at different times. So there may be bits and fragments of Greek uh, Greek material that would be helpful for even finding out what was in the other tracks. Sometimes and sometimes they would be translated from Greek into Arabic, and sometimes from Arabic into Greek again, and then sometimes into Latin. So there are all kinds of confusing overlaps. In most cases, 
we would translate a very important work, for example, some of Abu Bashar's works in Latin, Bob Zoller would translate that even though the Arabic text might survive. And we might then later translate it from Arabic because the, the, the Latin translation itself would have been so important historically. People would have learned from that rather than the original Arabic. But then we would do the Arabic so that we could make a comparison with the actual truth of the book, you might say. Do you expect this? So that's actually something they would actually later follow through on, where, for example, um, one of Schmidt's later translations, I think in like um, 1999 or 2000 or 2001, he translated part of Abu Mashar's book on solar returns, which um, he translated it from a Greek translation where somebody in the late Middle Ages has, had translated it from Arabic, which is the language Abu Mashar originally wrote it in in the ninth century. And Schmidt translated it, and that text was translated from Arabic into Greek, and then Schmidt translated the Greek version into English um, because Greek was the primary ancient language that Schmidt knew, although he also knew um, Latin and he spoke uh, a few different modern European languages like French and German and um, English because uh, Schmidt was just really good with languages. He had a Gemini moon and he had a real, some people just have a knack for languages while others don't. And Schmidt was somebody that had a knack for languages. But anyways, Schmidt would later, it's interesting that he makes this statement because he would later fulfill or make good on that promise by translating some of these other later medieval texts. Um, and that text on solar revolutions since that time has been translated from, I think, from the Arabic by others like um, Benjamin Dykes, for example, um, so that now we have both. And that's actually important because it allows us to understand and reconstruct some historical things about, for example, um, the use of house division by um, different astrologers and like why there was a shift from the Arabic tradition where they were using evidently using whole sign houses and quadrant houses at the same time. And we see, for example, in Bendix translations, he um, points out how Abu, Abu Mashar is talking about using both of those systems of house division at the same time. But then eventually when those texts get passed off to the Renaissance tradition, we see um, this sort of complete shift just to quadrant houses and this sort of loss or this forgetting about Holstein houses. And one of the things that may have happened is that um, there are differences sometimes in the Greek version of Abu Mashar's text on solar revolutions versus the Arabic translation. And that's one of the reasons why it's then valuable not just to have translations into English of the original texts in their original languages, but also sometimes to do detailed studies of some of the other um, ancient or traditional translations of those texts as well at the same time. Um, so it's just interesting that Schmidt's like aware of that issue right now and like setting an intention and he would later fulfill that intention um, almost a decade later. This work to have repercussions in the scholarly community, for example, having works translated from ancient Greece that have never been translated before, that there are actually people who are not astrologers who would be interested in these translations? Well. Um, there are two different communities outside of astrology that would be interested in this material. One group I am sure we will attract attention of, the other one we may attract the attention of. Uh, conventional classes, classical scholars uh, is the second group we may attract the attention of. Yeah, that we may attract the attention of, but um, 
I'm not, we're not really counting on that, and that will be interesting if it happens, but it isn't our primary concern. The other group, however, is people who are students of symbolism, uh, students of archetypal form, psychotherapists, uh, creative artists, uh, this kind of, these areas, these people I think will be uh, interested much more rapidly than the, than the orthodox academic community because they are more concerned with the quality of the material than they are its source. And what so in terms of the academic community, um, I thought that was an interesting comment because um, they talked brief, briefly basically about how the project might be received um, by the academic community. And it's true that some of the Project Hindsight translations did influence some classic scholars um, who then cited some of the Project Hindsight translations in some of their later works um, so that there was some influence to a certain extent there. But for the most part, though, Schmidt, especially in later years, uh, from what I remember in interacting with him, always emphasized that it was really the astrological community that funded the project in the end. It wasn't the academic community. It was just like everyday astrologers who were chipping in however much it was a month in order to subscribe to the translation series or who bought recordings or made donations or other things like that. So it really was funded by the astrological community and primarily impacted the astrological community. Um, and, you know, there's also different reasons for that because they did the preliminary translations, they did them on limited print runs, but then because they never did the final translation series, um, because they never produced that except for one book, which was Antiochus, uh, they, I think that that limited the impact and it limited the exposure of the texts and the and the um, awareness of the texts. I think in subsequent years, and so that's kind of been made up for in recent years because there've been, even though the the focal point of activity for project hindsight was really in the mid 1990s where they produced i think something like 30 translations of texts from primarily from greek and latin of ancient astrological texts and that was the majority in terms of the actual translation project of the output that was produced in terms of translations um Luckily, there have been other scholars over the course of the past 30 years that have come in and kind of picked up where Project Hindsight left off. Um, you know, people like Benjamin Dykes, who've translated a bunch of texts. More recently, Levant Laszlo with his Horai project, which is on Patreon, where he's basically crowdfunding the translation of a bunch of ancient Greek astrological texts, and you can sign up for it. And basically, every time he puts out a new translation, about once a week or two, he just releases it immediately on Patreon. So he's doing like a modern version, kind of of what what they were doing with Project Hindsight, but using the internet to do it. Um, and there have also been other academic translations of a number of different texts over the course of the past 30 years, like um, Mark Riley's translation of Vedius Valens. Um, there's been a translation of Manetho. James Holden came in in the 2000s and 2010s, and he published a huge amount of translations that he had done of Greek, different Greek and Latin and Arabic texts, well, primarily Greek and, Arab, Greek and Latin texts, where he'd just been like making translations for something like 40 or 50 years of his life, but he was just circulating them privately. 
and it wasn't until the last like 10 years of his life that all of a sudden he got all these translations published through the American Federation of Astrologers and this was sometimes translating texts that had never never been translated before or in some instances they were like ones that Project Hindsight had done like Paulus Alexandrinus but but they were actually publishing Holden's finished um, final version of that translation and they were making it available through online retailers like Amazon.com and other things like that so that they were widely available um, whereas the Project Hindsight translations were produced on a limited print run and then they were never um, republished again after that in those print versions partially because Schmidt I think uh, always wanted to, f- to do the final translation series and he maybe didn't like the preliminary nature of a lot of the early translations because they didn't reflect his later thinking or because he was aware of some errors or mistakes in the earlier translations and different things like that. So he always put off like republishing them basically uh, under the premise that he would do the final translation series, but then he only ended up producing one volume of the final translation series, which was Antiochus of Athens in 2009, and then no further books were ever published. So, um, yeah, the, there's a, little, a tricky thing where, on the one hand, Project Hindsight produced a huge amount of text in a very short span of time of just like a few years in the 1990s, but then um, it helped to kickstart or it helped to launch something. Um, that then there have been a lot of other astrologers and historians and translators that have taken part in over the course of the past 30 years so that it's become much more of a either a community effort or it's become something where many different people are participating in it at this point and it's not necessarily as centralized as it was at this stage in the early 1990s where you have this like singular project of people that are trying to do it and even with that you know in the early 1990s there were other people that were working along similar lines outside of project hindsight because the revival of like renaissance astrology had already begun in the mid-1980s in the uk and there was already a lot of excitement um, of people going back and reading the text of william Lilly and other renaissance astrologers as well as other earlier translations that were available from like manilius and firmicus maternus that other academics had done at that point um, so Project Hindsight became the the focal point in the 1990s, and it helped to kickstart the interest, especially in Hellenistic astrology, which hadn't had much interest up to that point. But then it's sort of taken off over the past 30 years and become this much larger thing, and it's become a much more um, prominent voice in the astrological community than than it was back then when they started. Will they be finding in this material? Will they be finding indications of Greek patterns of thought that were not known before? Oh, actually, much more uh, much more artistic than that. For example, the uh, Picatrix and the uh, Liber Hermetis both have pictures, descriptions of picture representations of sections of the zodiac, uh, which allow you to get into the symbolism through completely non-intellectual, non-linear, non-rational means. You just simply you look at the pictures and sort of allow them to resonate in your mind. It's a very new age kind of approach. And uh, except, of course, that it was done over 2,000 years ago. <laughs> There's one other class of scholars who I think will probably also be interested in some, not all, but some of these texts. Uh, for instance, the Leap of Hermetus at the very beginning contains this list of decans to which Rob is referring. 
and it is uh, the list itself uh, associates a particular god name with each of these decans. These god names are for the most part Semitic god names, not Egyptian god names. Uh, so we run across the first decan of Aries, for instance, is uh, associated with a god name, god name Sabahot. Uh, the, uh, we also find a Yaus, which is clearly a corruption of Yao. Uh, now, scholars that did, are working in the field of Gnosticism in particular are going to take note of this sort of thing uh, and see its relevant, the interlinking between the astrological and the Gnostic um, movements. Which is kind of true. There's been some discussion of that. It, I don't think it was necessarily influenced by Project Hindsight, but there have been a lot of interesting work on Gnostic um, incorporations of astrology over the past uh, 10 or 20 years. There's one scholar I really like named April DeConnick who's written some really interesting papers on this topic. And I was thinking earlier this year about doing a, a like a, a podcast episode on astrology and Gnosticism at some point. So let me know in the comments if you would find that interesting or if that's something I should do. So, do we have do we have any questions from our audience here today that you'd like to address to the Bobs? Bobs. <laughs> How long do you think? See, so they it's like they had some sort of audience. It wasn't very big. It was probably just five or ten people. Because in in another another video, there's more. Um, but I'd really like to know what this event was. It seems like it was some sort of casual event. Maybe it was with local astrologers um, from Berkeley Springs. Maybe there's an astrology group, because um, I think this was happening in Jeannie's uh, living room, basically. Um, but I would like to more, know more about this event still, if anybody happens to know anything about it. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you about. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> His audience is dead, bro. Uh, one of one of the uh, one of the treatises that you're going to be translating sometime, I believe, in your December uh, your December treatise is going to be on weather prediction. Yes. And uh, it seems to me that you could find an entire group of people very excited that you actually came up with, uh, and everybody else. I mean, weather is yes. big big business in America. There's a whole Weather Channel on TV. Do you see yourself being invited on to do the morning weather? Uh, who knows if I would come to that. <laughs> I wouldn't care to hold my breath waiting. <laughs> However, there is material here which could just, historically speaking, be important for people doing weather prediction because there's a, um, the real early Greeks, and we're talking about the Greeks contemporary with Plato, uh, were, even if they may have not been doing astrology, horoscopic uh, of the horoscopic variety were clearly correlating meteorological events and basic weather with the positions of the fixed stars particularly the helical risings and settings of those stars and this work by Ptolemy which will appear uh, in the middle or toward the end of this year uh, is in fact contains a catalog 
our calendar in which every day of the Alexandrian year is correlated to a certain weather prediction. On the first day of Thoth, which was the beginning of their year, you can expect that the uh, Etesian winds will begin to blow at a certain latitude, whereas there'll be thunder and lightning over here and so forth. Now these were actually empirical observations that had been compiled over a number of centuries by leading Greek astronomers Contrary to what the, the, most of the academics would, would believe, these, these were the primary astronomers of ancient times, Eudoxus, Hipparchus, and so forth, were all trying to correlate the basic weather patterns with, uh, with positions of the stars, particularly the Lock Horizon, etc. And so there's so much of this material that it at least could be, uh, it could be compared to, to modern weather patterns. However, we, we would have to realize that the, mo the modern environment, the, the modern weather, weather patterns are not solely influenced by natural events any longer because you have smokestacks and all kinds of other things that are interfering with the natural patterns. So you would, you would have to certainly compensate for anything like that. Plus there may have just been climate changes and whatnot. But yet the fact that the Greeks did this with some regularity and some precision uh, leads us to think that, that maybe this should be looked into again. But even Ptolemy himself said that it needed to be supplemented. This, this celestial weather predicting needed to be supplemented with, with actually more planetary material. You needed to determine where uh, major planets were at, at the same time as, as the stars were aligned with the rising and setting. Well, maybe the Syrians and the, uh, the uh, people in Israel would be interested in the Atesian winds. They might. <laughs> yes. I, I have a question, or I don't know if it's relevant or not. I was always told or kind of heard that um, the church fathers um, always used astrologers and so on, and then it fell in disrepute at some point. Would your scholarly work by any chance um, give respect again or honor to the astrologers that may have advised the popes in ancient times or not? Or Generally speaking, the term um, church fathers refers to the early Christian period, the first few centuries of the Christian period, the, uh, and the popes, of course, are a separate group of guys. Um, the popes in the 15th century and 16th century did use astrologers. Um, and, for instance, Luca Gorico predicted the ascension to the, uh, the cathedral, to the papacy of Alessandro Farnese, and was made bishop of two sees in Italy as a result of a successful prediction. Uh, but it isn't something which is generally done, um, as far as I know, since that time, nor was it a big deal for, astro for popes to use astrologers in the Middle Ages per se, although some of the popes were astrologers, uh, or at least were facile enough in the mathematics and astronomy to be so. Gerbert, who became Sylvester II, is one of these um, fellows who's reputed to have been uh, a pope who was an astrologer and also by some claimed to be a magician as well. Um, as far as what we're doing, uh, it's hoped that uh, what we can do is bring about a certain elevation in the standard of astrology among astrologers and uh, make people rec uh, in the general public realize that there was far more to astrology and is far more to astrology than uh, is generally thought to be the case. Perhaps that will have the effect of uh, raising astrology to a, uh, an acceptable science. Perhaps it will, but at least it will, it will certainly make uh, better astrology.
That's a super important point because I do think that's something that they um, helped to or were part of accomplishing is helping to sort of raise the standards in the astrological community. Um, so I wrote about I wrote a note about this yesterday. I wrote. Zoller's statements about raising the standards of astrology and his statements about the popes, on the one hand, demonstrates what was kind of unique about this project is that you had these, that each of these three people had a deep interest in the history of astrology and a lot of kind of nerdy academic topics that they were bringing into the astrological community that astrologers didn't usually discuss up to this point. Um, and while academics had been working on the history of astrology for a century at this point, not a lot of that work had been not a lot of work had been done um, on the history of astrology in the astrological community itself at that point, aside from occasional exceptions to that, like the work of Nick Campion, for example, in the 1980s and 1990s, um, and, and some others in his circle. Um, so in fact, the traditional revival itself had only recently started in the late 80s and early 90s in the astrological community, and it was running um, somewhat in parallel to a similar movement where astrologers were trying to go back to academia and get advanced degrees in order to raise the, raise the standards within the astrological community and perhaps be seen as more legitimate by the general public. Um, and uh, to that point, Robert Hand himself, for example, um, several years later uh, in the late 90s or 2000s would actually go back to school to get his PhD with a dissertation on the work of the 13th century astrologer Guido Bonatti, which he eventually achieved. So um, additionally, at the same time that that project was being funded, at the same time of Project Hindsight, um, Kepler College was being founded as well, which was an attempt to create an accredited school for astrologers, um, and again to raise the academic standards within the astrological community. So that school would only last for 10 years before Kepler would eventually lose their state accreditation because it was kind of like pulled out um, underneath them once the state started getting pressure, once they realized they had like fully authorized a school for astrology, basically. But um, Kepler and other things represented part of a general movement at the time that ran parallel to and yet was also strangely interconnected in some ways with the revival of ancient astrology. Um, and there's numerous other examples of different astrologers who in the 1990s and 2000s did the same thing and went back to school and got their degrees just like Robert Hand did. Um, Demetra George was one person who went back to school and studied classics and got an MA in classics in the 1990s. Um, Dorian Greenbaum went back and got her PhD. Nicholas Campion went back and got his PhD. Um, Liz, Liz Green also did the same thing. There was just a lot of different astrologers that did that and it was kind of like running parallel to and sometimes connected, sometimes overlapping with the revival of traditional astrology, but sometimes just running in parallel to it. But it was all part of this effort um, to raise the standards in the astrological community over the course of the past 30 years, which I do think was successful in different ways. It may not have been successful in the like highest, most idealist, idealistic goal of like legitimizing astrology, um, but I do think it it served the dual role of, on the one hand, um, raising the standards within the astrological community itself, 
and creating more discussions about the history and philosophy and origins of astrology so that we know our history better, we know where astrology came from better and what its original principles were better nowadays than we did 30 years ago. Um, and then to some extent, it also got more astrologers into academia and moving in those circles, which I think is also beneficial for a number of different sort of mainly academic reasons. Um, but yeah, so so that's allowed for more academic studies of astrology or, or more people to study astrology in an academic context than there were um, prior to the past 30 years or prior to 30 years ago. So that movement to some extent was successful in changing things to some in some ways, even if it didn't like change everything or at this point like make astrology a completely legitimate thing in academia or something like that. Will we find that astrologers are going to need to go out and learn Greek philosophy and uh, have a broader world view so that they can absorb this material? Uh, I would be a little reluctant to say that every astrologer has to go out and learn Greek philosophy, but I think an understanding of Greek philosophy needs to become much more widespread in the astrological community. Uh, a thorough knowledge of Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, or whomever is not exactly essential for a day-to-day -day counseling session. But at the same time, if astrologers had a better philosophical foundation in these areas, they might be less easily caught up by skeptics, uh, scientific types, debunkers, and so forth, who basically trip astrologers up in part because they get the astrologer operating from the modern worldview and then trying to defend astrology within it, whereas the correct practice is for the astrologer to be operating outside of the modern worldview and in, a, in the more ancient one, in which astrology is not a problem. Yeah, I would say that, that it's not so much a matter that... And I think this is true to some extent. I do think astrologers and the way that they, they talk about astrology and the way that they conceptualize it has changed. Um, partially due to the, the work, again, like parallel work by astrologers like Jeffrey Cornelius in his book, The Moment of Astrology, which was being published in the early 1990s and becoming really popular in the mid-1990s forward um, that popularized and, and revived the ancient conceptualization of astrology, which is that astrology is a form of divination and is not necessarily a, a study of celestial causation of like the planets like zapping you with rays necessarily, um, but was instead seen more as a form of like a causal divination similar to the like the modern conceptualization of synchronicity to some extent, although that's a whole other separate concept that in and of itself is not actually fully descriptive of the ancient approach to viewing astrology as divination. Um, so I think that's a, a good point that um, astrologers are probably better prepared today to be able to deal with and talk about and defend astrology in a skeptical context. And that's something I've tried to demonstrate um, on the podcast over the past few years by doing a few episodes where I talked to and tried to explain astrology to a skeptic. Um, and if you just Google that on my channel, you'll find a couple of episodes that I did like that, that kind of demonstrate how um, to explain astrology, I think in a way that's a little bit more defensible and understandable. So, you know, is everybody in the astrological community fully prepared to defend astrology in that way or, or capable of, you know, no, not necessarily. And that is something that makes me nervous that I think we do still need to work on a little bit, especially because astrology has had such a heyday over the course of the past seven years or so 
And at some point, that's going to probably drop off or not last, or there will probably be increased opposition to astrology at some point. And I do think astrologers should be a little bit more prepared for that than we probably are now and capable of having some of those discussions. And I do think there's certain ways that because the opposition to astrology has dropped off significantly over the past decade, um, partially due to issues in the skeptic community, that astrologers are a little bit not as prepared to to talk about and, and defend or explain astrology to people outside of the astrological community um, than they could be. But I think that's something where we're in a better position now through the revival of ancient astrology, because now we know more about the history and the conceptual origins of the subject, which puts us in a better position to actually explain it and talk about it in its totality than, than a normal contemporary astrologer would have been like 30 years ago. Astrologers should be told to go out and study this stuff. I, I don't think it's going to be necessary. I think what's going to happen is that when they see what's being done, they're going to want to go out and get this stuff. That it's going to be a spontaneous sort of an affair. There's already a great amount of that in the notes to these books, by the way, so it's not as if you have to go take a course in it. I mean, we're not talking about reading all the works of the ancients. I mean, to some extent, it's a matter of presenting the, the major concepts to people, which will be presented and represented again and again. And I think they can be assimilated fairly readily in that fashion. As a matter of fact, uh, let me take the controversial position. I want you to be controversial on this couch, but I might be controversial <laughs> elsewhere. Uh, saying that we strongly recommend they do not go out and take university academic courses in these philosophies because they have been systematically gutted by 18th and 19th century misunderstandings of what they really are about. What is actually much better for them to do is to encounter the philosophy through these books and then go and read the original books, hopefully with us steering them to the better rather than the worse translations, uh, or maybe even at some point providing our own, so they can actually experience the philosophy on its native ground without being uh, read through the positivistic and materialistic biases of the modern scholars. So obviously, you who are doing that was um, like a kind of a throwaway comment, but there was something like a little important there, and I don't know how to explain it, but that there was a little bit of a tension with Project Hindsight, with. Um, tensions between what they were doing was kind of like outside of the academic community and and even though they were drawing on much of the scholarship and research and insight of different academic scholars especially in the history of science um, they also were very cognizant of the fact that they were doing this outside of academia and they they didn't were neither expecting the support of academics nor were they um, necessarily wanting it per se um, but instead they viewed themselves, especially Schmidt had this thing about viewing themselves as like renegades that were outside of academia to a certain extent. Um, and I'm having trouble finding a way to articulate that, but I thought this comment by hand was interesting because that would become um, a somewhat central thing, especially for Schmidt but I think is, is already there evidently at a, at a relatively early stage in terms of, on the one hand, I just had that discussion about like astrologers going into academia and how that was a parallel thing in the astrological community. Um, but there was a tension because Hein Project Hindsight and Schmidt especially had this philosophy that, that academics would never accept astrologers. And what we had to do was just create our own um, thing outside of the astrological outside of the academic um, tradition, in the astrological tradition itself. Um, 
and our own schools and our own programs for sort of um, teaching people how to think is something that who's very big on. Um, so that's probably a whole like topic in and of itself to talk about like the pros and cons of that and some of the ways that that was like a good idea and some of the ways that it wasn't. But it's interesting that already in this early stage of Project Hindsight, the sort of like seeds of that idea are there through an awareness that they are operating outside of an academic context and some of the pros and cons that come along with that. Translating, holding in your hand uh, responsibility that goes far beyond saying that this word in Greek means this word in English, mm -hmm. that you must be versed as not only as linguists, but as philosophers to understand the background and as astrologers to understand how to put it all together. So that what people are going to be getting is not just a literal translation of ancient books, but truly a remarkable work that takes these these original works and puts them in some sort of context and explains and interprets them. As a matter of fact, all of us are quite steeped in philosophical issues and have read widely in, in original sources <clears throat> to the extent that we could. So I feel that our, that our prior training really allows us to deal with these philosophical issues. What would, would so that's really important because basically the summary of that is that Project Hindsight wasn't just about the history or the techniques of ancient astrology, but they were also trying to revive and trying to show astrologers the earlier philosophical foundations of astrology and often how it was connected with other philosophical schools and traditions. And that was actually a, a big thing for each of these men in different ways, in different and sometimes unique ways, but sometimes overlapping ways. We all have a curious strength, which will probably be viewed by mainstream society's weakness, which is that it is a tendency of our culture to specialize to the nth degree. The old joke being a specialist is a person who knows more and more about less and less until finally he knows everything about nothing. Um, well, we're, we're generalists. We have knowledge in a wide variety of fields. And the virtue of this is that we can actually look over this wide variety, see the interaction, and see the interplay without somebody saying, well, you can't do this because you're not trained in this field, you're not trained in that field, and so on and so forth. To do this work properly actually requires being this kind of a generalist, and we seriously question whether your typical university-trained scholar would have the overview necessary to put these things together. So we're talking about an ecological point of view here where you recognize how all the things are connected together and are able to present them in some unified pattern. Yes, I would say so. I mean, we, we, the annotations in the booklets will reflect that continually. Some of them will be speculations, too. Again, we're not, one feature of this translation program is that we, we are not trying to, to speak, you know, ex cathedra here. Um, the idea is that we want to be free to speculate about things. I think that this means this. And then in the later in a later edition say, I was wrong about that. It doesn't mean that at all. We would like to open up discussion and we particularly would like to encourage responses from the people who are subscribing. This is very important to us. Not only does it help us do, do the work better, but it keeps us from getting stale. I mean, it's easy to fall into a pattern. You say, I think that this is what this is about. You keep following it through. So you start, you start ignoring other bits of evidence, but sometimes a kind of open reaction from, uh, from people who don't necessarily know much about philosophy can sometimes be very, very healthy. 
for this kind of project. So when we say we want feedback from the readers, this is not just an advertising ploy. It's really serious, at least it is for me. I mean, me too. And as a matter of fact, we've already had that from some of our people. Um, so this is a super important point that Schmidt's making here, and it's interesting how emphatically he's stating it, but um, basically Schmidt knows that they're going to make mistakes, and he's saying that he wants to be open to receiving criticism and also having discussions about the material um, in the community in order to understand it better, and that that's actually a core part of the process of Project Hindsight, especially in the early years. And that's one of the great things about the early phases of Project Hindsight. So the early phases of the project were actually pretty open in terms of contributions from different people and different viewpoints and different traditions, and they openly solicited feedback from their readers and from their subscribers and from the community, and sometimes that would shape and impact things in important and notable ways. Um, so, you know, there are different eras in people's thinking, and I know, like, later on, you know, different people would develop more, especially Schmidt would develop more firm ideas about his views on Hellenistic astrology. But I think in this phase, in the first few years of Project Hindsight, there was actually this remarkable degree of openness and this sense of like community and idealism and all of these different things that were swirling around in the project that were very prominent. And so it's very interesting to see how emphatic Schmidt is about that and is about that process of both on the one hand saying they they want to be open to making speculations or observations of what they think is happening in these texts as they're translating them as they go, but that they also know that they want to be open to be, being able to revise their thinking or to receiving feedback that maybe you know, criticizes or pushes back against certain things or points out perspectives that maybe they're not aware of or not thinking of and that they think that that's actually valuable. Um, so that's actually a really important point in terms of what the early phases of Project Hindsight were, were really like. Um, and in terms of just like narratives surrounding Project Hindsight, that's why it's important to hear what they were actually saying um, in these early years and to understand that that sort of spirit of openness. Um, we actually received a, I received a phone call from a person who was actually in our audience, I believe, at the moment. And uh, he was responding to a rather scholarly article uh, that I had written in Our Hot Journal, which, which happens to discuss a lot of the sort of really abstract and somewhat difficult issues that come up in the translation project, and that's what, it, what its intention is. And this uh, person had had read this article and had responded to it from an astrological point of view, saying there's something here that isn't consistent. In other words, you're saying that there's an, an, an Aristotelian way of looking uh, looking at what the planet Venus and the planet Mars, or the planet uh, the planet Venus and the Moon does to the atmosphere, whereas it seems to me that isn't consistent with astrological symbolism. And and this was very interesting as an interaction because it caused me to go rethink how I had translated that passage. And so this is this is this is an exceptionally val valuable way to have interaction with the readership, and so we're not trying to dictate; we're just trying to open up. So. I have, I have another thought. This is: um, Will there be, if you got the attention, you were talking about the scholars, Rob, and the universities, 
but there'd be hostility uh, to your to what you're doing. I was thinking about any time there's a breakthrough in science or medicine, and it breaks with the what they thought was the truth or the laws that were operating. Now you're coming up with these. Um, you're not going for that kind of audience. I have no doubt it will be regarded as being exceedingly presumptuous. Uh, and our credentials will be questioned right and left. And I have also no doubt that if they, if, if we do attract their attention and are not instantly dismissed as being incompetent a priori, uh, that they will pick the translations apart left and right. Now the last move, picking the translations apart left and right, I think I can safely say our translators would welcome because it would give us something to respond to and possibly quite you know, improve the translations. We're not opposed to that. But uh, if, on the other hand, we are simply uh, rejected out of hand, no pun intended, because um, <laughs> because we're astrologers and not and not highly trained university linguists, and for that reason they uh, condemn us, then I think the our proper reaction, the reaction of the astrological community, should be to ignore them. I, I have another question for Rob. What is your vision? I heard you say something uh, earlier today that this is what you want. Um, in terms of the reaction of the academic community, I don't know, uh, you know, there were occasionally some scholars that would like cite the translations, or I know there was a scholar named Michael Molnar in the late 1990s, for example, that wrote a book about the Star of Bethlehem, and he was very um, influenced and acknowledged um, the translations that Project Hindsight was producing, and he, he drew on those and, and thanked them for, for that. Um, but and, and some of the Project Hindsight translations were cited in some later academic texts. Um, but for the most part, I think there wasn't like a lot of, I don't want to say like impact on the academic community. It's kind of tricky, like what the, what the impact was. I don't know. I know there wasn't just a lot of, there basically just wasn't like a lot of discussion partially because like academia moves kind of slowly. Part of the ways that um, Project Hindsight, though, influenced the academic community is through astrologers who, after being inspired by Project Hindsight, would sometimes go back to school and learn ancient languages and get a PhD. And then they would start um, writing articles or books in an academic context which then would actually impact, in some instances, academic discussions surrounding the history of astrology, especially. Um, so there's a few different astrologers like that. I mean, Dorian Greenbaum was one person who ended up going back and getting a PhD, and then she's done a, a lot of work on ancient astrology since then that's influenced academic discussions, and she was an early um, sort of Project Hindsight and Arhat person um, that was involved in or, or at least subscribed and attended some of those things. Um, and there have been some others. Um, Eduardo Gramalia, for example, is somebody who in the early 2000s, um, he attended a Project Hindsight conclave and, and was inspired by it. And he went back and studied ancient languages and got a degree and then later also published a book in Spanish on Hellenistic astrology. Um, so there's some ways in which it did influence academic things in that context, but otherwise I think for the most part Project Hindsight, its primary influence was on the astrological community for the most part.
were born for this this work that you're doing right now. And I'm curious as to what your vision is uh, for the next over the next four or five, maybe even ten years, where this is going. Perhaps you've said that already, but I'd like that. Well, where the whole thing is going is a little hard for me to say uh, clearly. Outside beyond what I said already, but uh, what, I'll give you my plan. Yes, that's what. Um, outside of being involved as editor of translations, uh, I see my role as being the conveyor of the material to the astrological community in such a form that it can really begin to digest it and integrate it into a contemporary practice. I'm not just. I'm not saying I'm the only one doing this, but that's that is a task I see for myself and anyone else who cares to take it on. Um, one of the things I started doing before the project began was writing an introduction of the astrological tradition of the West as it actually is, rather than modern astrology. And I quickly began running into issue after issue where I simply didn't know where things were really unclear. Let me, let me give you a concrete example of one issue that is surfacing, but I can't yet say is fully proven. Um, so Rob Han just talked a little bit about being kind of like his role as the front man um, of Project Hindsight, um, as well as the one who could probably best translate this material to the astrological community and put it in a presentable form to make it understandable, which I do think was his primary role, both that role and his commentary and notes in the introductions to the translations were super useful and super um, valuable and also his role going out and being essentially one of the most famous astrologers in the astrological community at the time in the mid-1990s um, and promoting the project and kind of selling the astrological community on the idea that there was something valuable about reviving ancient astrology and going back and studying the ancient texts. Um, so, but but he's talking about here in the long term that his primary value is going to be the one who can put all of this information once they've translated all of it and revived the ancient techniques in a presentable form and make it understandable. And in fact, he did end up doing that um, with certain techniques because, for example, he wrote a little booklet on the concept of sect the distinction between day and night charts that was very influential and influenced um, some of the uptake of that technique, um, especially by astrologers like my, myself and, and others. He also wrote articles in the Mountain Astrologer magazine and did lectures and eventually published a little booklet or a little pamphlet on whole sign houses. So he had a role in helping to promote that technique once it was recovered from doing some of the translations of some of the ancient texts like Paulus, um, which was their first translation where they noted right away in their first translation, they made the observation that Paulus Alexandrina seemed to be using the signs as houses. Um, so that was one of the discoveries. And then Rob, um, eventually in one of the other interviews that's contemporary with this that I have on another tape, it's interesting because they're looking at a chart together and he's actually reading the chart using quadrant houses. And it wasn't until later in the 1990s, I think, that Rob fully made the switch to whole sign houses. Um, after several years of first testing it out and trying it in practice and seeing how it worked in charts and things like that. So it's kind of interesting in terms of Rob's chronology that he 
he didn't immediately adopt whole sign houses or some of these other techniques, but instead he went through this process of like exploring them, first recovering them through the translations and finding that these concepts existed and then starting to put them in practice and see how they worked in a contemporary context and also in some instances synthesizing them with some of the techniques from modern astrology to see how ancient and modern astrology could work together. So I do wish... Um, that he had ended up being able to follow through with some of that work because he would have otherwise been the guy who probably would have written either a great um, summary of ancient astrology or he would have been the guy that would have got written a great synthesis of modern and traditional astrology that probably would have been very influential. Um, but instead, after Project Hindsight split up, after he left Project Hindsight in 1990. Um, six in 1997, um, he went the academic route in the 2000s to get his degree, and then, um, so far at least, hasn't ended up writing an introductory text to traditional astrology. Um, so instead, that task ended up falling to people like myself, and that's why I ended up writing my book on Hellenistic astrology, or Demetra George and her two books on ancient astrology or even others like Benjamin Dykes or Luis Ribeiro and Helena Avalar, who wrote good books um, on the medieval astrological tradition. So Hand, Robert Hand is supposed to have finished a revised edition of his book, Planets in Transit. He said in an interview I did with him earlier this year, and that will probably represent a synthesis of modern and ancient astrology. So it'll be really interesting to see what that looks like um, once that's released. But, it, but it's just interesting in terms of the chronology of how things worked out, you know, in terms of his plans then versus like 30 years later, where things ended up sort of falling out. Uh, in astrology from the Middle Ages and forward, a great deal of emphasis was placed on the qualities of the elements in the triplicities. Okay, so some of the every astrologer is familiar. Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius are fire signs. Well, most modern astrologers simply say they are fire signs. But to a medieval astrologer, that meant that they were hot and dry. And astrological medicine from the Muslim period through the Renaissance was based on these qualities. I'm seeing a great deal of evidence which suggests that the elements in the triplicities are not, in fact, elements made out of double qualities like that at all. See, there, there are two sets of four elements in the ancient world. There's the Aristotelian set, where every element is a pair of qualities, like fire is hot and dry, water is cold and wet, air is warm and wet, and uh, earth is cold and dry. Well, it appears that shortly after Aristotle, the Stoics redefined the elements, same four elements. But fire, instead of being hot and dry, was merely hot. Earth, instead of being cold and dry, was merely dry. Water, instead of being cold and wet, was merely wet. And air, instead of being warm and wet, was cold. Total change. And the astrologers, who are the first that we see using the elements from the triplicities, appear to be Stoics. We don't see Ptolemy, who is an Aristotelian, using the elements of the triplicities at all, not even implicitly. Whenever Ptolemy talks about elements, he's talking about Aristotelian elements, and he, and he seldom does. He usually talks about hot, cold, wet, and dry. Well, the theory of the four humors, which is the basis of all medieval and early Renaissance medicine, uh, is directly related to this idea of the triplicities being made out of elements like uh, pairs of qualities. And now it turns out, possibly, that this was an error in the tradition. 
and that consequently, whatever validity the humor theory may have, and I think actually it may have quite a bit of validity as long as you're not thinking mechanistically, but psychosomatically, uh, then it turns out that all diagnosis based on the horoscope, using the emphasis on the elements of the triplicities, could have been wrong. And this would, of course, weaken the tradition right from the get-go, because there's a fundamental factual misunderstanding about the nature of the elements. And so do you Okay, so that's actually a really important point, very subtle, not everyone will understand it, but um, so Hand is talking about the discovery that they made pretty early on in doing the translations, I think especially once they got to translating Vedius Valens, and this is where they first talked about it, maybe in like book one or maybe book two of Valens and their commentary, um, they made the discovery that early on that the Stoic version of the four elements and the qualities associated with the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water, and the different qualities of hot, cold, wet, and dry, that the early astrologers in the Hellenistic tradition seem to have used the Stoic version of the elements rather than the Aristotelian version of the elements, which became so prominent later on during the medieval and Renaissance era. Um, which was actually a pretty major discovery in terms of the history and practice of astrology, although most astrologers aren't widely aware of this because it's kind of like it's mainly a disagreement between the early forms of traditional astrology and the later forms of traditional astrology where there was a, a discrepancy in the tradition um, that leads to a different conceptualization and a different way of practicing when you're talking about the elements and that this has a major impact on things like the humors and medical astrology, depending on what qualities you're associating with um, the four elements, where especially the difference is that in the Stoic version, um, air is conceptualized, the air signs are conceptualized as, as primarily cold, whereas in the Aristotelian version, the air signs are conceptualized as primarily um, moistening or wet. And that's a pretty big difference in terms of how you conceptualize, though, or at least it, it sounds like a subtle thing, but it's actually a pretty major interpretive distinction um, in the astrological tradition. Um, anyway, that's something, um, if you want to know more about that, I wrote a section on that in my chapter on the signs of the zodiac, because I actually ended up making that like a personal study of mine that I was super interested in and su super um intently focused on working out for a number of years. So there's kind of a extended treatment of that topic in my book um, in the chapter on the signs of the Zodiac. And then I think I also um, touch on it briefly in my paper on the planetary joys and the origins of the significations of the houses and the triplicities, which if you Google that, like Chris Brennan, planetary joys, you'll find a free paper that I posted online where I talk about that a little bit, and especially the discovery that was made um, that we that I made with Benjamin Dykes um, about a decade ago about how the elements came to be assigned to the specific signs of the zodiac that they're assigned to, and that was kind of a major discovery. But it's tied in with all of this, anyways. Rob Hand is um, he's making a point that this is really important and it's a major distinction in the tradition and he's drawing a conclusion then that it indicates a major like error in the tradition and a major mistake although it's interesting that immediately after this Zoller um, who is 
representing the later medieval tradition, um, immediately sort of like rejects and tr- or objects and tries to um, sort of a you know present a counterpoint to what Hand is saying, or at least to like issue or or encourage caution or like slow things down. Do you think that today that we may find ourselves in a place five years from now when you have translated, you know, a, a total of a hundred of these various works, that we may find ourselves in a place where there is no tradition supporting what modern astrology is doing and there's a requirement to rewrite it or, or redo it? I don't it. think it'll be that bad. Uh, but I think we'll have to rewrite and rethink an awful lot of modern astrology. But I, I think the it, it, modern astrology is not so much wrong as it's a small piece of the whole. And what we'll do is put back the other pieces. There are some things like the elements of modern astrology may be out and out wrong. But uh, mostly I think it's a, a matter of putting back pieces. Yeah, the, this issue of the, the elements and viewers and... Um, so that comment by Rob is interesting because he's talking about contrast between modern versus ancient astrology there. and. Um, on the one hand, it's kind of interesting Rob's views in the early 1990s and how sometimes he was much more open about saying that certain things might be wrong in modern astrology. Um, but later on in his career, especially by the mid-2000s, um, he urged in a, in a lecture I saw at Kepler College once that I might release at some point, um, he urged caution because he was concerned about a tendency towards um, fundamentalism that could sometimes come with the rise of traditional astrology or ancient astrology. And he urged um, sort of a synthesis or reconciliation of ancient and modern astrology and recognizing the positive points of both, essentially. Um, He had a lot of other things to say, and it was very much, it became tied up with um, the personal tensions that it would eventually develop between Hand and Schmidt um, in the, after they split up in 1997, and then their subsequent personal dispute kind of spiraling or snowballing into a a public professional dispute. So it's hard to um, fully sort of extricate um, Hand's sort of um, views in terms of pushing back against fundamentalism because it was partially um, was partially directed at Schmidt in terms of saying that Schmidt was being a fundamentalist later about Hellenistic astrology or that at least there were certain aspects where he was concerned that it could head in that direction if it was not checked to a certain extent. But it's interesting here, you know, Rob says something here that, you know, maybe some modern astrologers might object to the idea that there's certain things that don't work in modern astrology or that he thought maybe weren't valid or, or valuable. But that's very much like an approach Hand had always taken from his empirical perspective as an astrologer, which all, all astrologers take, which is that we all try to test out different techniques to figure out what works for us. And sometimes there were some techniques that Rob would do that, and he would come to the conclusion that it didn't seem like a valuable technique to him. So um, I'm just bringing that up because it's an interesting thing. And I actually, it was important for me because I ended up being influenced by some of those discussions. And it's one of the reasons that I ended my book in the conclusion in the very last page um, the way that I did, because I encouraged and I made a point that while the entire purpose of writing this like 700-page book was obviously that I thought there was something valuable about 
recovering ancient astrology that would be useful for contemporary astrological practice that I didn't want that to be misconstrued as uh, encouraging a form of fundamentalism and saying that only the the old ways were the good ways and that we had to go back to the past and stay there but instead I encourage people to go back to the past find the things that were valuable about ancient astrology and then bring them forward into the present to merge them with some of the good things about contemporary astrology and the good things about other traditions and viewpoints that exist um, because I think that's actually what astrologers have been doing for thousands of years now and that's even what Hellenistic astrology itself represents was a a synthesis of different traditions and a, and a blending of um, pre-existing traditional techniques from their time period that were ancient to them with some contemporary new innovations that were new at the time in the first century BCE. So I wanted to mention that because it's, it's just part of an ongoing process. And it's interesting to hear in some instances, especially from Rob Hand, some of his early statements reflecting um, some of that tension of like reviving ancient astrology, but also what do you do then about modern astrology and how do you hold the two in each hand at the same time? The element talk of primitive qualities is an interesting question with regards to the development of astrology from the ancient period through the Middle Ages because uh, you find, for instance, in Guido Bonatti's Libra Astronomia, a description of the relationship of the elementa, elementata or the primitive qualities to the elementa or the elements, which to some degree seems to support Rob's uh, analysis of the situation. Um, but you have a very big body of uh, medical lore, um, quite apart from astrology, uh, which is thoroughly based upon the humors and elemental theory, uh, deriving not from directly from the Stoics, but from Galen and Hippocrates uh, in Greek science, uh, Hippocrates being a good deal older, actually, uh, and Galen's work being Greco-Roman period, uh, which uh, is still, in fact, a, the major medical system used in the Islamic world uh, in areas like uh, the Far East and in Afghanistan and so on and so forth. So before we get too certain about what's happening here, we have to compare not just the astrological tradition, not just the philosophical tradition, but also their interface with the medical tradition as well. Yeah, I don't think, in fact, that the... So that's really important, um, or at least it's just important as a historical note there, that um, what's happening here is Zoller is somewhat uncomfortable with, or at least he's urging caution with what Hand is saying, because Zoller points out that the later medieval and Renaissance astrological and medical traditions were very much based on the Aristotelian approach um, rather than the Stoic approach to the element to the four elements that Hand is talking about being like the original version of the way of talking about the elements. And so, this is important because this is an example of one of the early tensions that would arise from digging this material back up because it also unearthed some inconsistencies in the tradition where things had changed. Um, and different astrologers and different practitioners, depending on what perspective they're coming from or specifically what form of traditional astrology they are specializing in or adopting or choosing to advocate, um, will have different opinions about which techniques to emphasize or how to use them. 
So in this instance, there's a difference between, for example, how um, Hellenistic astrol most of the Hellenistic astrologers used the four elements versus the way that some of the most of the later medieval and Renaissance astrologers used the elements. Or another one that would of course come up is like sect was used very much in the early Hellenistic tradition, but then it wasn't used as much by the time of the late tradition in the Renaissance. Or um, we already know about the house division thing, that whole sign houses seems to be very popular in the Hellenistic tradition, but then by the time of the Renaissance tradition, um, quadrant houses is the dominant house system by that point. So in the process of like uh, recovering all these traditions and reviving them, it actually accidentally ended up also reviving or at least um, highlighting or creating some tensions between different practitioners depending on which tradition they ended up emphasizing or focusing on. And this is an early instance of that where Hand is talking about the earliest, the early, the, yeah, the earliest astrologers who talked about the four elements and applied them to the signs of the zodiac who use one approach. Um, but it's causing tensions because then his like hand is saying something strong then that that original approach was the correct one and that the later approach must have been mistaken. Um, and it's immediately creating a tension because the guy sitting next to him, Robert Zoller, is somebody who practices the later approach from the medieval and Renaissance tradition. And so Zoller is kind of like urging like caution before before going too far there because he says that a lot of the tradition later tradition was based on this alternative approach so you know i'm not going to get into like who's right or wrong or if there is a right or wrong actually i do have pretty strong opinions about that because i do think the stoic approach was the original approach um and that's something i've tried to like demonstrate um, and tried to revive actually because it's been out of practice for over a thousand years now. Um, so, for example, in the Zodiac series that we did last year on the podcast, where I did one episode per Zodiac sign, I tried to emphasize the Stoic approach in order to show how that would work conceptually by talking about the air signs as being cold or the water signs as being moistening or wet, um, as opposed to the fire signs, which are hot, or the earth signs, which are dry. Um, so even though it seems like an abstract philosophical issue, it can show you how, for astrologers, it can have a major major impact in terms of how you speak about things as basic as the signs of the zodiac, because it really alters um, some of the basic concepts underlying the signs of the zodiac and what their primary keywords are. Um, anyway, it's just interesting as an early example of some of the tensions that would arrive that would arise in the astrological tradition through recovering all these ancient traditions. Discovery that, or rather the potential discovery that seems to be looming here about complicities is actually going to disturb the humoral theory of medicine particularly so much as to disturb the attempt to diagnose from a horoscope using the humoral theory. And it's that interface between astrology and medicine that this uh, challenges not the actual medical method. Much of much of modern astrology today it has moved uh, into the computer field, where people are able to do uh, intricate pieces of work that they. Um, actually, I'm going to pause for just a second and go get a drink because I ran out of water. I will be right back in like three minutes. Uh, so, be right back. All right. I am back. I'm ready to resume. Um, I did want to give a shout out to the live chat. Thanks everyone for joining me in the YouTube live chat today. It's been great seeing some of your comments. I'm reading through as we go through and 
talk, or as I go through and watch this, um, I wanted to ask everybody to think about some questions that you might have for once we get to the end of this. And I think once um, the video is done playing and I'm do done doing the, con the commentary, I'll have some time to answer some questions. Um, I may not be able to get to all of the questions or there may be some questions I feel more like going into or not, but start thinking about and formulating some questions. And then once we get to the end, I'll uh, basically ask everybody at that point. So hold your questions until then, and then I'll see if I can answer some at the very end of this. All right, so let's let's get back to work. They never would, would have been able to do before computers because the calculation time would have been just unacceptable. When you talk about the ancient astrology, does it lend itself to uh, computerization, or uh, is it very? Um, does it have its little defined boxes, or is it much vaguer? I mean, how will it? Uh, actually, I can answer that question very clearly because I've already begun working on it, being a computer programmer among other things. The answer is, it is much more computerizable than modern astrology because it has much more definite procedures for doing things. There's much less room left for impressionism, intuition, and fudging. Uh, it's still going to require a great deal of intuition to actually turn a collection of squiggles onto a, on a page consisting of the horoscope into a concrete analysis of a person. But um, uh, we already have in some of our software printouts that break the chart down into dignities and abilities according to a Renaissance, actually, technique uh, that is really a pain to do by hand. Not impossible, but just a pain. And there it all is laid out, and you can immediately start uh, applying techniques like this uh, very rapidly. So uh, I think that I think this is actually an extremely computerizable system. Hindu astrology has the same has the same peculiarity. It's very very computerizable because, as I say, there are there are definite techniques for going from A to Z. Now they may we may have to adjust these techniques, but they're there. Now, on the other hand, one can also say for those people who are not inclined to use computers, and particularly for those who are somewhat gun-shy of mathematics and arithmetic, that medieval astrology in particular lends itself to uh, simplified mathematical methods. Uh, very, the whole thing is, wherever possible, symbolic and just a matter of counting. It's, not, uh, it's, it's quite different from the 19th century style, uh, primary directions-based, Placidian, uh, mathematically intensive and very scary to many people, uh, astrology. It's something which is uh, user-friendly uh, to be a little bit anachronistic in my metaphor. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the, uh, when I say the stuff lends itself to computerization, uh, it, it is, it, uh, I agree with you, it, it isn't usually mathematics the computer is doing, it's just simply right. doing table lookups for you fast. Right. It's very. It is quite possible to do it by hand, and infinitely easier than doing the kind of astrology you were just talking about, which isn't even easy on a computer. Um, yeah, it's really interesting hearing them talk about this. And in a separate video, um, at the end, I, there's a like a short clip of them sitting, the three of them sitting around um, in front of this ancient little Macintosh computer from 1993, looking at a chart. And it is interesting thinking about how far things have come in terms of astrological software since that time. Um, 
sort of pros and cons. There's been like some major developments and advancements in some ways that we can do tons of stuff now that we couldn't do back then, where, for example, um, you know, in 1983, 1983, 94, and 95, when they first recovered Zodiaca releasing, there were no programs that could calculate it. Um, but nowadays, we've got tons of different websites, and most of the major software programs will all calculate Zodiac releasing for you in some form or another, or even Astra.com will calculate it for you for free. So, um, you know, we've come a long way in terms of the ability of different techniques to, to different astrological programs to calculate some of these techniques, as well as basic stuff like sect or, you know, the rise of like whole site houses and the ability to have that calculated as an option in different software programs that's something you know that wasn't there even until relatively recently for example astro.com didn't integrate whole sign houses in in their um their approach basically in their website until i think it was 2008 2009 because um alois trendle the founder of astro.com attended one of my lectures um, in 2008 at the United Astrology Conference, and afterwards he was like, "Okay, like I'll finally, so some, somewhat reluctantly, like integrate it, so you can use whole sign houses as an option on astro.com, which was pretty cool." But you know, it's been 30 years, so we've come a long way from this point where, if you just think about like the limited. Um, options that they had in terms of chart calculations and calculation software and everything else to what we have today. It's it's really been quite amazing how far we've come. Do we have any other audience uh, questions here? Why would, what was the reason these books weren't translated before if there's so much valuable philosophic material in there? Was it just prejudice against No, that's, that's the one <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, no. Yes, I say no. All right. Um, the before is, is perhaps the, the point which, in which Bob and I would dif differ on is where the before happens. Uh, if we place the before in the 19th century, the reason is largely because the change in the nature of society, the change in the nature of education that occurred in the 19th century. Uh, you had the rise of industrialism and the, that necessitated an entirely different viewpoint uh, in terms of education, how people were educated, and how much emphasis you placed, for instance, upon classical languages. Then on top of that, you had the whole scientific and enlightenment attitude that moved people out of the uh, area of astrology entirely. Uh, the latter part of it is a matter of prejudice. There's no question about that. But the former part of it is a matter of, of uh, selectivity, that there were different designs or needs of the society as a whole, so there weren't as many people around who had any ability to get into these older texts. Although most of the texts were translated into Latin. Most of the Greek texts were translated into Latin in the 1500s and so forth. And it's a bit of a mystery to me why it didn't uh, create a kind of astrological renaissance at that time, the way the translation of Greek mathematical writings created uh, sort of a, a mathematical renaissance and scientific writings creating a scientific renaissance. But for some reason, it didn't quite happen with the astrological material. I can offer a theory. Yes. Um, I don't think astrology in the Renaissance had quite the sense uh, that the other sciences had of being a broken tradition. Now, in fact, it was a broken tradition. But I think astrologers felt they were, in fact, in possession of most of the important information 
So that what you find in the Renaissance is astrologers citing other Renaissance astrologers and Ptolemy, but not too many of the other people. It could be that. And also in the mathematical area, for example, the people in the Renaissance were able to point to very clear cases in which the ancient techniques were superior to the ones they had. Uh, I mean, just unequivocally, I mean, certain Greek mathematicians were able to solve geometrical problems uh, that the people in the Renaissance simply couldn't solve. And as a matter of fact, they would tend to consider it possible in some way, but the Greeks were able to do that. So, but in astrology, you wouldn't have unequivocal evidence of the superiority of ancient astrology. You wouldn't have some you know, example of something that somebody had been able to do better. So the idea that there had been a wiser age of astrologers would not have such quite such a profound effect on the people at that time. So that seems to be a supporting point to go along with yours. The paradox is there. I don't fully understand why they're emphasizing this point too much, and I'm not sure it's fully true. And I, I wonder if Schmidt would still say the same thing later on, because specifically the point about um, these texts being available or being translated into Latin in the Renaissance and just being available because that is one of the things that they didn't have all of the texts from the earlier Hellenistic tradition available during the late medieval period or during the Renaissance. They did have some and in fact in the instances where they did have access to earlier texts like Ptolemy you can see authors like Lily having this tendency to default to using if there was a discrepancy in the tradition, he would almost always default to doing what Ptolemy said because Ptolemy was his oldest source that he had in his possession from the second century. Um, so it's like they would default to the older tradition or had a tendency to when there is a discrepancy, but they didn't have access necessarily, or there wasn't widespread access to Valens. There wasn't like widespread access to Paulus Alexandrinus or other astrologers that wrote in Greek. Um, instead, the primary texts that were available were like Ptolemy, Manilius, and maybe Firmicus. Um, but that's about it from the Hellenistic tradition. So that's one of the reasons I'm a little unclear why they're emphasizing this point, and I don't think that's necessarily true that they didn't um, that they had access to everything during the the Renaissance period, but they just didn't that it didn't impact them or something like that. There's something a little a little questionable about that. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to mention that. I'm trying to look at my notes to see if there's anything else I meant to mention about that. But I think that's it, or at least something to a caution, I guess, to think about. The, the, the great astrologers, in, in, from the point of view of the Renaissance, were ninth-century yes. Arabic fellows like that's Abu right. Mashar, that's right. yes. and they had Abu Mashar's they did, works. Yes, that's right. No question about that. But in more modern times, these texts, these edited texts, have been available throughout the 20th century, and they. Uh, but the problem is they. they they were not in the hands of astrologers. Um, in in the live chat, uh, F I don't know how to pronounce your name, but Fian, Finan says, Greek texts like Valens and Hephaestio came into Western European collections around the fall of Byzantium, by which point the Islamic sources were around for centuries and quite popular, right? And I think that's the important point, although it's like Valens or Hephaestio or even Paulus, because I've seen, for example, um, not Ficino, but Ficino's um, student, student, the the skeptic of astrology, draws on part of the text of Paulus Alexandrinus that he evidently read in Greek, 
um, for his big critique of astrology. Um, I can't think of his him right now. It's like the biggest critique of astrology that's ever been written. Uh, but one of the points is I don't think those texts were widely available. And so that's one of the issues is like, um, you know, Lily, for example, cites a bunch of his sources and the books that he was drawing on. And he doesn't cite like Vadius Valens or Hephaestio or Paulus Alexandrinus or people like that. So even if some of these manuscripts existed or survived in Europe, um, I don't think there was a, a sort of like widespread availability of these texts in the same way that in the 20th century, even though there were critical editions of some of these texts in Greek and Latin of the different astrological texts from ancient times, um, because they weren't translated into modern languages, they just weren't accessible um, widely to most astrologers. And so they didn't have much of an impact until you had translation projects like Project Hindsight come along and translate them into contemporary languages. So I think that's, yeah, Pico de la Mirandola is who I'm thinking of. That's right. Thank you. Appreciate your comments. All right, let's go back to it. I mean, they were just in the hands of academic scholars who were doing the who were doing even the text editing for reasons that had nothing to do with astrology. Usually, they were trying to find if there was some uh, history of astronomy, something about the history of astronomy that they could find in the astrological texts. Occasionally, they were interested in cultural matters, you know, what was Egyptian, Egyptian temple like, 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 or something like that. But they were always ulterior motives. Nobody ever read the texts on their own, for, for their own sake, okay, just to see what they have. And we think it's very important never to prejudge a book in that way. I have a point I want to make about this. Uh, there have actually been a few astrologers in recent times who have read some of these books. Uh, one of the things that Project Hindsight is going to be a corrective to is the attitude of these astrologers. I won't name names, but quite a few of them are still alive. But, um, <laughs> but not in this room. But not in this room. <laughs> Certainly not on this couch. <laughs> uh, there are a number of people who have written about ancient and classical astrology in modern times who have done so just dripping with superiorities that only modern astrology understood the profound wisdom of the ancients. And you can just sort of see as, a, as, as footnotes underlying the whole text written in visible ink, I can read this stuff, you guys can't, you're all ignoramuses. Uh, what we're here for, quite frankly, is a democratization of this process. Uh, if astrologers, after we're finished with our work, if astrologers are ignorant of the ancient material, they'd be by choice. But the fact of the matter is, these, these people who have read some of the ancient works were, by and large, lucky that they had access to the material. They were in a town with the right library nearby, they had the right connections. A few of them have done translations which are creditable and do democratize the process, although there's one translation in particular I can think of that's currently in print. You have a hell of a time getting out of its publisher, even though it's an astrological source. Um, and, and just generally speaking, Astrologers have had the tragic, made the tragic mistake of using this to establish their own superiority over other astrologers rather than sharing the information with the community. This is not something we are going to do. Right at the, at the beginning of the reintroduction of astrology into Western society. Okay, so that's really important. So there's a few points there. One, before Han started talking, I think there was a point that the text they were translating had been available to scholars for a century but they hadn't been available in translation to astrologers. So that's a really important point in terms of what they were doing. 
Um, the other point is, I don't know who Hand is actually referring to where he's talking about like contemporary astrologers that were like some small individuals that maybe had access to texts, but then adopted a superior added an attitude of superiority to them i think he might be referring to like cyril fagan and some of the sidereallists um he could be talking about maybe like rudyard but i don't think rudyard had training in classical languages so i don't think it was rudyard although the it's certainly like the, the rudyard types that had ended up adopting a much more tone of superiority about modern 20th century astrology over ancient astrology, um, but I'm actually otherwise curious who Hand is like alluding to here. Um, but the the main point that's actually important is that Hand states that they have a much more idealistic mindset of just making everything available to astrologers and democratizing the tradition. Um, and th that's pretty amazing if you think about it. And there was something very idealistic about that. Um, sort of like um, sort of like how the internet was actually just emerging in parallel at the same time. And we're talking like 1992, 1993, and the major, ironically, the major outer planet alignment or planetary alignment that I always noted was important that was happening at the time was the Uranus-Pluto, or Uranus-Neptune conjunction was happening at the same time in 1992 and 1993 as Project Hindsight was getting started. And that was always something that I noticed when I first got into Hellenistic astrology and was living at Project Hindsight. So I actually took it back in history and I found that something similar to Project Hindsight would happen at almost every Uranus-Neptune conjunction, about every 175 or 180 years, um, you would get these like translation projects where astrologers would go back into the past and they would start translating ancient texts and recovering the tradition, and then they would merge or synthesize it with whatever the prevailing tradition or paradigm was at the time. And this goes back 2,000, almost like 3,000 years into the tradition, you can follow this cycle. And I've done talks on it before in the past. Um, I think I sell one of those talks on my website. I'm not sure if I still do, but if not, I'll have to do a podcast on it one of these days to show you because it's a really striking um, parallel. So, um, but anyways, my point is that there's something very idealistic about what they were doing with Project Hindsight and the early ethos of Project Hindsight was to make the entire tradition available to everybody so that you didn't have to have the training of a classic scholar, that you didn't have to know ancient languages in order to read the texts and in order to be able to draw on them and incorporate some of that work into your understanding of astrology. And there was something very idealistic about that and very important where they wanted this material to be available to everyone and then everybody could then decide what they wanted to do with it, if anything. Um, and there's something very beautiful about that and very important. And I think at its core, to me, that's always been the most important point about what Project Hindsight was in the mid-1990s during the height of the translation phase of the project when they were actually producing translations is this, um, this sense of almost like generosity, this sense of exploring of being these like intrepid explorers where they don't really know what they're going to find but they just have this sense that it's important and it's something they're being called to do so they start translating these texts and finding things as they go and this sense of making 
the tradition available again to the astrological community, um, almost to some extent as a, as a community service in some sense. So um, I do think things changed at a certain point later in the history of Project Hindsight in like the 2000s and 2010s, and there was a shift away from the focus of the project as a translation project that was trying to make the translations and the texts of the traditions widely accessible. And I do think there's a way in which it became more closed off, um, especially once the original three founders split up and left, um, with Zoller leaving in 1985 or so and Hand leaving in 1997 or so. Um, so, But that's kind of a topic for that's a story for a different day, I think, um, that I've been trying to figure out how to tell that story, the story of Project Hindsight in its totality for a long time now, and I haven't been sure how to approach it. And that's one of the reasons I haven't yet until recently, until this, basically, until this year. Um, but I did want to emphasize that point because I always thought there was something incredibly idealistic about what they were doing by democratizing the tradition by making it free it available to astrologers again to read through these translations and by making that a community effort that was f- not just funded by the astrological community but where they were also openly so- soliciting comments and feedback and even criticisms from the community at the same time and helping to host some of those discussions so that is, to me, has always been the, the best part of Project Hindsight. And it was the thing that I drew on when I went there for two, two and a half years and lived at Project Hindsight from 2005 to 2007. The primary thing that I did that that gave me access to is it gave me access to all the translations that they had produced at the time, which was, I think, 30-something translations. And a lot of what I did was just sit down almost immediately and start reading through those translations word for word and... Um, understanding what Project Hindsight had uncovered. And one of the things I was surprised about is that very few astrologers in the community up to that point by 2005 had actually taken the time to do that. Um, Many astrologers found them too difficult or um, didn't understand what they were saying or um, even though maybe they like supported the idea of the project initially, they were more comfortable with their approach to astrology as it stood today and, and found it too difficult to like change their approach or change really foundational things about their approach because what we were finding in the Hellenistic tradition was sometimes radically different from modern contemporary astrology. Um, but the biggest hurdle, I think, is just that most people don't have um, the sort of not aptitude, but just this sort of ability to sit down and read an ancient text and understand what it says. And it kind of takes a special um, mindset to a certain extent. I mean, everyone can do that. Everyone that can read can do that to a certain extent. But I do think there's different, um, I don't know, like constitutions or something that are maybe more suited for that. And it was something that I found myself that I particularly enjoyed and felt like I was good at in terms of like reading comprehension and things like that. Um, so that was one of the things that I did starting in 2005 when I got there. And that's why I eventually realized I needed to write a book on this because I needed to write an overview of everything that had been found up to that point about what Hellenistic astrology was 
and what it looked like as a tradition or in some instances what it looked like as a system. And that's what I ended up finishing after 10 years of working on my book and publishing in 2017. But it was all largely based on reading the translations. And you know what's interesting is sometimes when you read the translations, sometimes you come to the same conclusions as the translators, or I would come to the same conclusion as Schmidt or Hand, or sometimes there would be other instances where I came to a different conclusion and I could see what they were saying about it, but sometimes I would see the text differently and have my own interpretation. Um, But that's what was so cool about the early phases of Project Hindsight is by doing the translations like they did and by setting this spirit of openness with them, of being not just completely open in terms of releasing the translations to the public, but also releasing their commentary and their speculations about them. Um, They allowed people to engage with that material in a way that had never been done before. And I think that's, that's hugely important and is, is worth respecting and acknowledging how important that was and how that subsequently changed and has shaped the astrological tradition over the past 30 years um, because of of what they did. 1870s, the early 1900s, the Theosophic Society played a very major role in this transmission of astrology into the society. They weren't alone, but they, they really boosted up quite a bit. And they, in this country, they were abetted very largely by uh, 30 or 40 years of transcendentalism that had happened prior to the, the rise of the Esophic Society, where an interest was redeveloped in astrology. But the philosophical and moral uh, preferences of the Theosophic Society led them to adopt a peculiar attitude towards what kind of astrology they were going to talk about, what kind of astrology they were going to uh, promulgate, and what kind of astrology they would uh, support. So uh, given the fact that it, they, though the Theosophic Society was founded in New York in 1875, um, uh, Americans have always tend to be pretty Eurocentric, really. It wasn't long before the Theosophic Society relocated its main offices to London and then over to Adjur in India. And uh, the English domination of the um, content of the and direction of theosophy uh, has a, the effect of increasing the Calvinistic uh, preferences of the Theosophic Society over what kind of astrology they're going to talk about. So right, right there you have a kind of a censorship, uh, not necessarily an intentional one, but a certain preference and direction that, that the whole tradition went in. So to, to bring back to where we began for all of our audience, uh, we are standing at a major threshold in astrology where not only are we getting enormous amounts of information for what could be called new discoveries, talking about quasars, talking about asteroids, Uh, talking about all kinds of new astronomical pieces of data that we couldn't have known about because we didn't have the instruments to know about them. And that's bringing in new energy and and dealing with how to interpret that and how to integrate that into working with individuals. And then at the same time, as you say, you are democratizing the past and bringing it forward and putting it in people's hands so that astrologers of today, as opposed to astrologers even 20 years ago, will have this incredible array. Even three years ago. <laughs> will have this incredible array of 
information available to them that will take them from ancient Greece to the 21st century and hopefully the ferment that comes out of finding the synergy and how one blends those pieces of information together will indeed take us to that astrological renaissance that didn't happen in the yes. 1500s and that hopefully will be happening with the work that you're doing here with Project Hindsight. And I think that all of us can say, uh, as astrologers who will be benefiting from this, thank you for your work, for your foresight in putting together Project Hindsight, and for dedicating your talents and your whole accumulation of life knowledge to handing to all of us some remarkable pieces of information that could have never been known otherwise. Thank you. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a great ending. Um, and Jeannie was right. They were standing at a major thresh threshold in the history of astrology. Um, and a renaissance did eventually happen where astrology has taken off um, and become such a popular thing over the course of the past decade. And while that is not like necessarily due to Project Hindsight or due to the revival of traditional astrology, um, the revival of traditional astrology that started in the 1980s, um, partially with astrologers working in the UK um, and reviving the Lily tradition, partially with astrologers working in the US and that were reviving the Hellenistic and medieval tradition, um, and even other astrologers, I mean, in other countries like in Italy with um, Beza, who was doing translations of texts from Greek and Latin into, into Italian. Um, all, the, all these different things are components in bringing us to where we're at with astrology today, 30 years later, where, like I said at the beginning, this was recorded in, I think, July of 1993, when Saturn was in late Aquarius and early Pisces. And here we find ourselves back there with Saturn, I believe it, like two or three Pisces today. So almost an exact Saturn return um, 30 years later. And um, yeah, astrology is grow has grown and thrived a lot in in ways that maybe they couldn't have even expected or anticipated way back then. And I do think part of that is that the quality of astrology has been raised um, over the course of the past thirty years. And one part of that is the revival of this interest in ancient astrology, the recovery of some of those techniques, the recovery of the history of our astrological traditions that we actually know much more about where astrology came from and how it got started and what its theoretical principles are than we did prior to 30 years ago. Um, and also due to raising the um, almost like academic rigor of astrologers as well as their desire to think about astrology at a deep or more complex level in terms of not just the techniques and the practice, but also the philosophy of what we're actually doing and what the principles are underlying it. So, you know, I don't want to overemphasize things because that's one of the issues sometimes when it comes to the history of things 
And that's why I keep repeating that it wasn't just Project Hindsight, but there were a number of different individuals in different places and different countries that contributed to the revival of traditional astrology and that the revival of traditional astrology had already started in the previous decade with the revival of Lily and other texts in the UK. Um, but I think Project Hindsight did contribute a major make a major contribution then that has gone on to influence the astrological community and the tradition in some very notable and very distinct ways. Um, and some of the techniques like sect or zodiac releasing or other things like that probably wouldn't exist or be as popular in contemporary practice today if they hadn't come along or it would have taken much longer for those techniques to be recovered because we would have been waiting on these individual translations of different academics that might have done them at different points in time um, over the course of the next few decades. And so what happened here is that in a very short span of time, essentially between 1993, when they published their first translation, and I want to say about 1997 or so, which is when Hand left, they produced just this huge amount of text of like 30 translations or so, um, and that supercharged the revival of ancient astrology and the revival of traditional astrology in a way that's very distinct and very important um, and has a number of ways that it influenced the tradition in ways that are possibly even like imperceptible today, but nonetheless that um, that project hindsight helped to help to fuel or help to get going. So, um, all right, so everybody, if you have questions, put them in the live chat now, and I'll see if I can answer some now that we're at the end of this. Um, final remarks besides that, you know, like I said, just to reiterate, I haven't known how to talk about Project Hindsight for years because there were, you know, there were some positive things, a lot of positive things that we've talked about here with Project Hindsight, but there were also some um, not, not very good things, or there were some challenging things that came up. Um, with different things in terms of like, um, sometimes there were issues in terms of like the falling out between Robert Hand and Robert Schmidt and how that split the community in different ways and how that originally started as like a personal dispute that snowballed into a professional one. Um, there's issues in terms of sometimes like business practice things that were not very good um, or sometimes disagreements about um, the Hellenistic tradition and like what it was or how to talk about it. Um, or how to promote it and different things like that that have been um, tricky because I haven't known how to talk about them for a long time because I both, especially after Schmidt passed away in 2018 or Zoller passed away in 2020, um, I don't want to go too far in either direction where on the one hand you could say and do like only positive things and do like a hagiography, which is when you like you know, grant somebody like sainthood and you say only good things about a person and you never acknowledge any of the um, negative things or any of the blemishes um, or drawbacks, or you can other, the other thing that can happen is you can go too far in the other direction where you focus only on the negative things or you magnify the negative things out of all proportion and, and paint somebody as only being negative. Um, but, you know, people are complicated um, history is complicated. There's a lot of different positive and negative things that happen in anybody's life or at any one point in time. And so figuring out how to treat that um, carefully and respectfully and to balance 
those those different sides of like the the positive and the negative or the light and the dark has been part of something I've been trying to think about and figure out how to do for a number of years now. But part of my goal with my work and with the astrology podcast is to document the history of astrology. And because, you know, I was had become directly involved in and knew um, some of the principal founders of Project Hindsight or the fact that I lived there for two years and I lived with Schmidt, that I lived with Zoller also for a year who came there for a period of time in 2006 and 2007, or that I know hand and have had hand on the podcast a number of times puts me in a unique position to try to document some of this recent history. And because it's been a Saturn cycle, it feels like it's time to start doing that also because I realized recently this year, if I don't, that it allows in the absence of any documentation for other sort of weird narratives and agendas to be able to sort of um, take take over and sort of um, flourish just in the absence of anybody else trying to set the record straight. So um, that's why when I came across um, and was able to get this video digitalized recently, very recently, I realized I should probably release it as part of the historical record, but also add some commentary in order to start building towards some of the documentation of the revival of traditional astrology over the past 30 years that I've been meaning to do as part of my work as, as an astrologer who's not only contributing to that revival, but who also as a historian wants to document it firsthand um, as it's happening, and especially now that we're starting to get some space from it, and after a Saturn cycle, we can see the results of some of this work 30 years later. So um, I've been doing some of that already on Patreon through um, a, a podcast series that I released called the Casual Astrology Podcast through my page on Patreon where I've been talking about and doing some episodes already where I talk to different astrologers that had firsthand experience and doing what I call an oral history of Project Hindsight and, and just building up some interviews that I'll eventually turn into or um, put together to produce something more definitive at some point in time. I'm not sure if I'm there yet, but I'm at least starting to take steps with videos like this to try to document some of this history um, and to put it out there so that now the community has this video and it will be preserved and now people have the ability to see firsthand a little bit more what it was like and what the project, how it was being pitched and described to the astrological community and just the reality of the words of the principal founders way back then when they were founding it. And uh, yeah, I think that's what, I, what my goal here was today in releasing this video and doing this commentary. All right. So... Let's look at some questions. So it's been bouncing back and forth between, I think, 180 and 200 live viewers during the course of this live stream. So thanks, everybody, for joining me. This has been fun. It's been great doing this all with you and going on this this little journey together. Of course, it ended up being longer than I expected. But when you're doing a commentary, you're playing not just the video, but also like recording things in between. And it always ends up getting longer than you think. All right, so let me scroll through and see um, if there's some good questions that I like. feel like I have a good answer to, which I may not with all of them. Okay, so Krista DeMeo says, how much work is still left undone from the original Project Hindsight aspirations? Are there texts left over that are mid-translation? 
So that's a really good question. Um, it's a little tricky. I just want to pull up a website here. Okay, so um, what was left undone? So they translated a bunch of texts, um, and you know it really depends on what tradition you're talking about. Because, like I said, there's the Hellenistic tradition, which is like the Greek tradition from roughly the period of the Roman Empire. There's the medieval tradition where they were writing in Arabic and Latin, and then there's the Renaissance tradition where they were writing in Latin, and then eventually other European languages like English. Um, so Schmidt translated a huge amount of text. I'm actually shocked at how many texts. It's something I've always struggled with like in the mid-2000s when I got to Project Hindsight because I didn't understand the huge amount of translations they had done in the mid-90s and how that was possible because when I was at Project Hindsight, one of the things that I noticed is that Schmidt had a tendency to... to um, he struggled to bring projects to completion to like finish things um, partially because he had very high standards um, not just for other people but also for himself he had the ability to like see the flaws in something very clearly and as a result of that he had a recurring thing throughout his life where he um, had a really hard time finishing projects and it often got him into 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 trouble or into issues in different ways so given that and given my awareness of that and seeing some of the different projects that, that were stalled or kept continuously getting stalled with Project Hindsight in the mid to late 2000s and, and forward, I was always surprised and didn't understand how many translations they produced in the mid-1990s, um, although I guess it just had something to do with the pressure of like creating this subscription service, essentially, and then needing to fulfill and needing to do it. Um, it probably also had to do with something about the synergy between Schmidt and Hand, um, or or between Schmidt and Hand and Zoller in the beginning. Which that's one of the things I love about this video is it really shows that they each have these different complementary qualities and backgrounds that actually work really well together. Um, and while some of those tensions eventually would grow and develop, that would lead to Zoller splitting in 1995 and then Hand splitting in 1997. Um, there was something really special about their backgrounds, I think, that created a perfect mixture for what they did in this relatively brief span of time in the mid-1990s, from about 1993 to 1997. So, um, to make a long story short, you know, those are preliminary translations. They weren't supposed to be definitive. They're also very hard to find. You can sometimes find scans and stuff online, or you can find them in secondhand places. A lot of those translations at this point have been, I don't want to say replaced, but there's other versions of those translations now that have been done by other translators that are more widely accessible or um, easy to get a hold of. Like, for example, the very first Project Hindsight translation that Schmidt showed off in the beginning of the video was Paulus Alexandrinus. Um, it was that little translation of Paulus. But since that time, there have been like a few other translations of Paulus at this point. So 
Dorian Greenbaum did a translation at one point of Paulus, although that's actually now largely out of print as well. She published that in like 2001. Hopefully she republishes it at some point soon because it was it was good. Um, James Holden has published a translation of Paulus Alexandrinus that is now widely available. I think if you just Google Paul of Alexandria on Amazon, you'll see Holden's translation. Um, and now more recently, um, I think Levant Laszlo has produced or is working on a translation of Paulus Alexandrinus um, through the Horai project. And I just wanted to mention that and give a shout out to it again. Um, let's see, I'm having trouble pulling up the page on um, the website, but I'm going to spell it out. It's H-O-R-O-I project.com. And if you go there, um, he has a website, but most of his stuff at this point is it's a Patreon where you just voluntarily donate like a certain amount of money each month. And then you get immediate access to not only all of the new translations that he's producing every week or every two weeks, but you also get access to all of the past translations that he's already done and completed. And one of them, I think, is just a complete translation of the work of uh, one of them is a complete translation of the work of Antiochus of Athens or the introduction to Antiochus by Porphyry, which has a bunch of definitions in the Hellenistic astrology. But Levant is also working on other translations of Paulus, eventually Valens, and and a number of other astrologers. So um, I'm saying that because there have already been a bunch of other translations. There's also been new academic translations. For example, the text of Manetho was translated recently in an academic translation. We also had people like Benjamin Dykes who came in starting in the mid-2000s, who was originally a student of Zoller's, um, but then he started translating texts from Latin, and he translated dozens and dozens of medieval texts. And then eventually he went and he learned Arabic so that he could start translating texts from Arabic. So um, as a result of that, Benjamin Dykes has translated a bunch of texts. Um, Ali Alumi is starting to translate a bunch of texts into Arabic or, or from Arabic into English through his Patreon. Um, we have people like Levant Laszlo translating from Greek. There have been other scholars like Eduardo Grimalia who translated with Benjamin Dykes book three of Hephaestio. So in that instance, for example, Schmidt had translated books one and two of Hephaestio through Project Hindsight, but Schmidt never got to book three of Hephaestio. So other scholars in that instance, Eduardo Grimalia and Ben Dykes came in and they did their own translation of book three, which sort of like completed things. There've been a bunch of instances like that where we've either got translations that have been completed and finished, or we have new translations by different scholars. And sometimes their translations differ in interesting and notable ways from the Project Hindsight translations. It's not always like major differences, but it's ones that if you're doing textual studies are sometimes important to note the difference in how different translators will render and translate different, um, different translations. So to make a long story short and actually answer the question after that five or 10 minute um, digression, I think the answer is that the majority of the, especially the ancient Greek texts, have been translated at this point and are available in some form one way or another, even if they're not very widely accessible. Um, and 
over the course of the next five to 10 years, I think especially as long as Levant Laszlo keeps doing his work with the Horai project, that we'll see the rest of those texts that haven't been translated yet um, come into wide circulation here pretty soon. So I would say that, um, especially in terms of the Greek tradition, that we're getting close to. We, we already have the majority of the most important texts have been translated. And I, I don't think I can like quantify it because I want to put like a number like 80% or something, or maybe even higher if we're talking about like major astrological texts that survive from the Greco-Roman tradition. The vast majority of them have been translated at some point or another at this point. So in that sense... Um, what was started with Project Hindsight has largely largely been brought to completion because the vast majority of the most important astrological texts from the ancient traditions have been translated and are more widely available now 30 years later than they were when they started. And that's not only due to Project Hindsight, but that's due to a wide variety of different astrologers and translators and academics around the world that have contributed different pieces to that. So that doesn't mean that there's not more work to be done. And one of the things that I always encourage people is if you want to take part in that effort, then starting to learn an ancient language like Greek or Latin or Arabic um, would be super valuable because there's still texts that either need to be translated or that could use another translation in order to do something more definitive. Like, for example, how many of the Project Hindsight translations were always supposed to be preliminary, so there's still room to do new translations to build on those texts and in order to create a more solid understanding of what the original authors intended to convey. So there's still a lot of work to do in that area. So I definitely don't want to discourage people and say, you know, we're done or Project Hindsight, that the that the effort underlying it that was initiated with that time is is over because there's definitely still work to be done but we're in a much different place now 30 years later in terms of um, texts that are available compared to where we were 30 years earlier where there was almost nothing that was available in um, easily accessible translated form all right let me scroll back up to other questions Um, 13th harmonic and 12th harmonic. I mean, Hand has a lengthy discussion about that, I think, in one of the prefaces to his, to him and Schmidt's translation of Valens about the difference between the 13th and 12th harmonic. So I'd have to direct you to that in order to, to you know, learn more about that discrepancy. Um one person asks, why do you think, what do you think will happen to Schmidt's audio and work currently or going forward? Do you think the blue zines will become available? Um, I don't know. I think things are, are a little up in the air about whether that work is going to be continued forward. Of course, his um, wife, Ellen Black, passed away just a few months ago this year in 2023. And so she was really the last remaining core member of Project Hindsight well, aside from Robert Hand, of course, um, because, you know, in some of the lists, it was really not just the three Roberts, um, the three men, but Ellen Black was also a major 
um, person that was involved in the project as Schmidt's wife and as one of the people that um, was very much involved in how things worked out. And she was actually the one that got into astrology before Schmidt did in the early to mid-1980s and was the one who encouraged him to look into it and to, to take it more seriously as something that was worth looking into. Um, so her passing away this year, she was one of the last people in terms of the later members of Project Hindsight, um, which is, is basically just Bob and Schmidt and Ellen, um, and her passing away, you know, seemed like it, it put a sort of end to a certain era of Project Hindsight over the past 30 years in terms of it not being clear if she was going to finish some of Schmidt's work. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen with that at this point in terms of going forward. Um, I think it could go a number of different ways. Um, and, you know, with the with the blue booklets, I don't know if they'll be republished because that was one of the issues with Schmidt. You know, Schmidt himself deliberately didn't republish them. So you have this question of, like, should they be or why did he not want to republish them and whether that different pros and cons surrounding that and whether it's worth going back to popularize something that Schmidt himself considered to be um, an earlier unfinished product or whether it's better to create new translations like that kind of build on the earlier ones but are ultimately more final or more more superior in some way, um, which is partially what Levant Laszlo is doing. And, and part of how he's doing that is that he is actually going back to the manuscripts where for a lot of the Project Hindsight translations, they were relying on critical editions that had been compiled by academics over the past decade, where an academic will go back and they'll get as many manuscripts as they can find of a text, and they'll compare them and try to reconstruct what they thought the original Greek text was. So those reconstructions are what Schmidt largely was translating from, for the most part. Um, but what some scholars now are starting to do, like Levant Laszlo or others, is they're actually going back to the um, manuscripts that sur still survive, where scribes and, and astrologers copied over on handwritten manuscripts the actual texts of the astrological tradition. And in some instances, Levant Laszlo is finding texts that were not taken into account in the critical edition so that he's actually able to create a superior translation because he's taking more of the early texts into account. So I think some of that work is actually really important, and it's one of the arguments for focusing a little bit more on where some of the newer translations are going by some of these, this new generation of astrologers who are also scholars who are paying attention to not only um, the techniques and the texts themselves, but they're also paying attention to the manuscript tradition and the context of the texts and, and all these different things surrounding them. So Levant Laszlo, Benjamin Dykes, Eduardo Grimalia, um, Ali Alumi, and, and a number of others. All right. Were there any major astro weather of the time that you think contributed to Project Hindsight's idealism and spearheading. Well, actually going going back, I want to address something in the previous one with Schmidt's audio. One of the things I always see people go through is when it comes to Schmidt's work is when people are first exposed to it, they go through a period of being very um, 
taken by it and very drawn to it and very struck by it because he was a very deep thinker and he had a lot of interesting things to say about astrology. But sometimes people will go through this this, this like honeymoon phase that will last for a year or two where they become very excited about it and become very devoted to that and some of those different eras in Schmidt's thinking. But one of the things is it's kind of important to balance that out and not become a little bit too tied into just the work of one scholar. And I think that's very important. And it's something um, sometimes I see happen where I think it's better to take into account a bunch of different people um, in order to get sometimes Schmidt's viewpoints, which were, were interesting and sometimes valid or compelling, but also sometimes to get other viewpoints as well. So that's one of the things that I'm a little nervous about in terms of that I've been nervous about in terms of how to talk about Schmidt's work is that I've felt that it's always been important to present that there's both really good things there, but there's also criticisms of that and to present them at the same time because I don't want to accidentally contribute to people going down the road of like the hagiography thing of like worshiping or deifying somebody, which I do think is sometimes a an issue that can come up sometimes with some of that material because of the way sometimes it, it, it was presented. So I guess I would just encourage caution when it comes to that uh, as one of the things in reference to that last question, if some of the audio stuff does become more widely available, and maybe that's something we can talk about more in a different time in something that's more dedicated to his work in particular. Um, somebody asked, was there any major astro weather at the time you think contributed to Project Hindsight's ideal idealism and spearheading? Yeah, I mean, I think it had to do with the Uranus-Neptune conjunction that was taking place at the time because it was almost perfectly aligning in 1992 and 1993, but it was also um, part of a broader thing that was in the air at the time that I think also led to, for example, the parallel of Kepler College being founded during the same time and that move into trying to make astrology more academic. Um, it moved into... There, there was a revival of interest in Vedic astrology at the time where some of the first um, Western organizations for Vedic astrology were founded in the early to mid-1990s, almost in parallel. So there was interest in looking at other ideas there. Um, it was just a very idealistic time. I think it had a lot to do with that Uranus-Neptune conjunction, although there may have been a tinge of the like Saturn and Aquarius and Saturn and Pisces stuff going on as well. All right, other questions? Okay, I'm just scrolling through. There's a lot of comments. Thanks everyone for your comments. Are the translations archived in one place? Um, I mean, it depends what translations you're talking about, but uh, the I think the Horai project is the only place that's currently making things like widely available, um, like that with with current ongoing translation work. Okay, I'm still scrolling through. Sorry, everyone. Um, there's so many comments, but it's great. 
Okay, history project hindsight. Um, somebody asked, was Rick Merlin Levine part of Project Hindsight? Um, no, he wasn't part of Project Hindsight, but I, I do think he attended um, some of the first, what they called phase conclaves, which were their early conferences starting in 1994. I'm told that the first or second phase conclave was actually a pretty big event at the time that a lot of astrologers attended and, and were involved in and took part in. And even if they wouldn't necessarily become traditional astrologers themselves, that there was more of a community sense uh, at the time, that this was like some, something important to promote. Somebody asked, what's the astrology behind the revival of Hellenistic astrology? Um, I think it's still the Uranus-Neptune conjunction, because that happens about every 170 years, and you can see it way back in history. Um, somebody says, I hope Ben does the complete Hephaestio translation. Yeah, that would be good. Now that Ben did book three, maybe him and Eduardo can go back and translate the rest. Or honestly, that's probably something that um, Levant Laszlo will do pretty soon as part of the Horai project. Okay. looking to see if there are any other questions. There's a lot of comments. All right. I think I'm getting to the end. Is there any last comments before I wrap up for today? Um, somebody says, taking into consideration that AI is so good at recognizing patterns, do you think it would be useful as a tool to better understanding of astrology, um, yeah, maybe as a research tool. And it was interesting that Hand, in one of those later comments, they were talking about like computerization and whether a revival of traditional astrology would be helpful for that. And I think there's still some ways in which his answer is true today, um, but we'll have to see. I mean, there's limitations to that and it'll we'll have to see how AI develops here in the next 10 years. Somebody asked, do you think that image is a good translation of the word you mentioned in Paul of Alexandria's word, work for Zoidion? I mean, it is. That is one of the major meanings. Um, it's been a while since I thought about this because for me, um, there became a whole there, there became a whole thing about and and something I wrestled with in my book about what language to adopt. And I tried, you know, being influenced by Schmidt, I understood his emphasis on on choosing terms very carefully and that you don't always have to use the pre-existing terms but sometimes if there's a word that's better that more clearly translates the original concept underlying the greek term that you should go with that and integrate it into your practice because um, it can actually give you insight into what the original technique meant and i do think there's definitely some great um things for that. And there's definitely some terminology that I've integrated into my contemporary practice that I use in, in that sense. But there's other things where, um, like for a sign of the zodiac, I, even though I understand it means, it doesn't just mean image, like that, that was one of my issues and why I don't use image. Because early on in the Hellenistic tradition, you can see that there's a tension between the tropical and sidereal zodiac. 
and the constellations do reflect like images of things, but then also from a very early stage, they're also using these abstract 30-degree divisions or segments of the ecliptic that are measured out from the solstices and the equinoxes, and they're using the tropical zodiac so that what you have then is not necessarily images, but idealized segments um, of things or signs. And I'm not necessarily convinced that like image is such a radically different word and meaning compared to the word sign in terms of what sign has come to mean today. Like you have like a stop sign, which means something, or you have different types of signs or symbols that can speak to you and can say something symbolically. And I'm not really convinced that like we gain as much from using the term image um, that we don't already have, or in some instances have in a better way when it comes to sign. That doesn't mean that I'm not open to or okay with people that want to use image for a translation of the word zoideon, and I think that's perfectly fine. I think each person ultimately is going to come to different levels of comfort with how much they're going to change the the contemporary words that are used for astrology when they start practicing Hellenistic astrology and how much they're going to like adopt the older conventions versus how much they're going to continue to use current conventions. Like for example, whether you say um, trigon or triangle instead of trine, um, like it's interesting. Sometimes I think doing some of that stuff, and it is good to know, especially if you're reading it in a translation, what the original term was, because sometimes that can raise interesting points as you're reading the translation but in cur- in terms of like contemporary practice I've very much tried to find a middle ground between integrating some of the ancient terminology while still also making concessions to and using some of the modern or contemporary terminology because I feel like sometimes one of the issues with the old with like completely adopting ancient terms is it can almost almost lead to this like insider outsider dynamic where you're just doing something for the sake of like it looking fancy and different and you run into that issue actually sometimes when you study other traditions as well like Vedic where they might have a different term for something and you have a choice between using like the Sanskrit term for that or like the um, English term for that and sometimes people will use another term almost just because it sounds more exotic and I don't know that I necessarily for me that that's not always necessary per se so this is a whole other topic and it's probably too big to attempt to get into here so maybe I shouldn't have tried but that's the like short version of that but it's actually a very complicated topic that maybe I'll have to save for another day um, any plans to te- publish any more text yourself, Chris? Um, yeah, I may actually have, because that was one of the things I did is I published last year Riley's translation of um, Vadius Valens. And the reason why I did that is because Schmidt's translation was very good. And it also had, it wasn't just the translation that was good, but also it had diagrams for each time that Valens would use a chart example um, Hand and Schmidt went in and they created a an image to reflect what the chart looked like as Valens was describing it in the text. And that was really important and useful when you're going through and reading the text so you can follow what Valens is saying with his chart examples. Um, and then also Hand and Schmidt would 
write like a commentary in the footnote explaining the chart example and some of the things in it to make it more clear. So that was super interesting and super valuable. But because those translations, you know, because Schmidt let them go out of print, um, they weren't widely available. And then in 2010, Riley, Mark Riley, who was an academic scholar who's retired, um, released his translation of Valens, um, which was also a somewhat preliminary but not too preliminary translation of Valens. It was it was pretty well finished, but it didn't create it didn't contain any diagrams for the chart examples. So one of the reasons I went through and I. Um, got permission from Riley to publish his translation is one to put it in print so that you know students could have it in book form which I think is really important and valuable um, but also two in order to put those diagrams in there for the chart examples so that you can follow the text because that's crucial for understanding um, the techniques as Valens is teaching them so um, that was something I did last year I do have a, a other possible books in the works um, but I think I, I don't want to mention them quite now, but I'm, I'm working on some stuff. So you'll see, you'll see here before too long. Um, okay. Other questions. Okay. So one person asked, why do most astrologers work? I think he's saying most. They're saying most Hellenistic astrologers require an oath from people who are initiated into astrology. And what was the position of people at Project Hindsight in making this knowledge public? Um, so yeah, so Valens is the one primarily that has these oaths to keep the teachings secret and not to share them with the unlearned and uninitiated. But there's another part of that oath where Valens is also asking you primarily to. Um, acknowledge your teacher and acknowledge the one who, who taught you this information. And I think that was one of the major things for Valens, because I think there's a line at one point where he talks about seeing one of his works like circulating in the marketplace or something without his name on it, that somebody had, had kind of ripped him off, I think. And I think that was part of Valens's motivations for the oath as well. So that's one of the reasons why for me, you know, that's something I thought about seriously in publishing my book on Hellenistic astrology in 2017 um, because of thinking about that issue. But I came down to two things. Like one, I think it was most important for Valens just, Valens just to receive acknowledgement and to give acknowledgement to his teachers. And so that's one of the reasons why I had a very long acknowledgement section in the beginning of the book, both thanking Valens and giving him credit for his work and also opening the book with a quote from Valens on the inside cover, um, but also giving credit to my other teachers, including Schmidt, including Demetra, um, and a number of others who, who contributed to or influenced my work on that topic. So on the one hand, that's how I dealt with that is just giving credit where credit is due, which I think is always very important and I've tried to do pretty consistently in my work, um, but also that I think when when I came I think when it comes down to it the conclusion I came down to is that Valens if Valens was given a choice between like you know because the state of astrology was much different in Valens's day in the second century and the state of the tradition and astrology has as since that time has rised and fallen several different times as different civilizations rise and fall and different and astrology's passed from culture to culture and language to language and where I always came down with that is that um, I feel like if Valens was given the option between like the tradition dies 
and ends here and his work is not passed forward into the future anymore, if he's given a choice between that because people are swearing an oath and then not sharing the information and passing it forward to future generations versus if the other option is like people publishing about it and talking about Hellenistic astrology and talking about Valens and giving him credit for his work, um, based on just like my familiarity with Valens and his thinking based on reading the anthology and that being my primary source for Hellenistic astrology, I think he would default to the second option, which is that it's more important to pass the tradition on than it is to to keep it secret for reasons that were probably more relevant back then in the second century when these mystery traditions existed than it is today. So that's where I came down when it comes to that. And there were different discussions about that at different points in time, um, but that's where I came down to it for, for myself. Um, Oh yeah, somebody mentions Alan Alan White's video. I think I meant to mention that. I don't know if I did, but Alan White's, you know, flip chart introduction to Hellenistic astrology is good to know about since that's a big link in the tradition. And Alan's flip chart video, which is on my YouTube channel, if you search like Alan White Hellenistic astrology, represents the Project Hindsight views of Hellenistic astrology circa 1999 and 2000, around the time of the Einstein intensives when Schmidt. Um, had one of his first versions of the system together where he thought he had everything figured out and he outlined a sort of approach. That's kind of what Alan is summarizing and he's translating the translator in that presentation. Um, but one of the things also that you have to understand about Schmidt's work is that he he would change his thinking multiple times, like pretty regularly throughout the course of his career. So I don't think there was ever going to be a final definitive treatment of Hellenistic astrology as far as Schmidt was concerned, because it was too big of a topic for any one person to pull off in one lifetime. And because Schmidt himself liked to have a sort of flexibility to his thinking, and he liked to be able to change and revise his thinking periodically, and he did um, every few years or every several years. And I think that's one of the reasons why his final translation series was never released, although that's partially because he moved away from wanting to translate the text and make them available to the astrological community. And that's one of the things that I, I did not like about his later work or, or shift in emphasis was away from the, I feel like the idealism and the, the democratization of the 1990s. Um, but also in terms of not even finishing like a final course on Hellenistic astrology, I think it's probably because his views were still growing and changing because they are for all of us. For every astrologer throughout the course of our life, we're always going to continually learn new things and we're going to continue to grow and think. Um, but for some people, we sort of know that at some point you have to just like cut it off at a certain point and put your work out there, even if it represents a stage in your thinking that might change later. Um, but for Schmidt, that was hard. It, it was something that he struggled with because he always wanted to present something that was solid and definitive and um, that he would never change his mind on. But I don't think he ever uh, achieved that state necessarily because it's it's a hard thing to live up to. All right. Other questions? 
Oh yeah, somebody, let me see if I can put links in the chat. If I can't share the screen, I can at least put the link to the Horai project, which is Levant's website where he's starting to post stuff and especially to um, his Patreon, which uh, I'm actually having trouble finding. There it is. Okay, so I'm posting this in the live chat for any of those listening to the audio version later. It's patreon.com slash project. And that's where he's publishing essentially the closest thing to a current version of Project Hindsight that we have, which is somebody that's doing ongoing translations of Greek astrological texts into English and is doing a pretty amazing job of it. Um, yes, that's true. Firmicus Maternus also had some oaths in his thing, and I think this is tied in with the hermetic tradition that Firmicus and Valens were part of and shared in common. Um, it was some, something about uh, the Hermetic text because we find similar oaths. I found a similar oath in a Hermetic philosophical text called the Discourse on the Eighth and the Ninth, and it sounds very similar to um, the oath that Valens has. So I think this is something that might have been tied up in some of the Hermetic philosophical and um, astrological material, essentially the texts that were floating around that were attributed to Hermes. All right, so it looks like, um, I think that's the last of the questions I can answer. So it looks like we've been doing this stream for, what is it, three hours and 40 minutes. All right, so we're approaching four hours. Um, I've now made it a huge live stream again. So this is fun. Thank you everybody for joining me. This is a bit of an experiment because I've been wanting to do more live stream content and um, yeah, mix that into some of my other stuff where I'm, you know, I do my normal long podcast episodes on the Astrology Podcast. I also do um, my, I'm starting to do more short videos. Um, I also wanted to experiment with this format in order to do more live interaction. And this was fun. And I think it was a good first experiment for that. So um, as for myself, everybody I think already knows, if you want to learn more about my work on ancient astrology, you can get my book, Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune. Um, or I also teach a course on the subject, which is available at um, courses.theastrologyschool.com, where I give my sort of take on everything and go into the techniques of ancient astrology, but I also sometimes reflect on issues like the history of Hellenistic astrology and its origins. And sometimes I talk about, for example, the debate that arose between Hand and Schmidt over what I call the sudden invention versus gradual development argument and this idea of whether Hellenistic astrology was a singular invention or whether it developed more organically over, over a period of time. So that's something I get into in the course in addition to just teaching you how to read birth charts um, by putting some of these techniques in practice. So check that out at theastrologyschool.com if you'd like to learn more about that approach. Um, yeah, but otherwise I think that's it. Thanks everyone for joining me today in the live chat. Thanks everyone who has supported everything on the podcast lately. It's been um, really great and I'm excited to take things into whatever this new sort of like era is as we move forward. And 
I'm going to keep doing what I can to try to document some of the stuff that happened over the past 30 years, especially in terms of that, like, that early period in Project Hindsight. I have some other recordings that I'm thinking about releasing. Um, I've already posted one of them recently, uh, which was an interview with an extended interview with Rob Hand, I think from the same month in 1993. I posted um, as an episode of the Casual Astrology podcast on my page on Patreon, so you can check that out there. And otherwise, I'm going to look into the best way to release some of the other material that I've been finding and unearthing recently, just in order to make it part of the historical record and put it out there so that people can develop a better idea of how this revival of traditional astrology took place, at least in terms of this um, piece of it and the role that Project Hindsight played. So thanks for everyone for joining me and for being involved with and helping with this effort. And I guess I'll see you again next time.